Hey, 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 everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of How's That Day? It's a culture rundown with Tom and Phil. I'm Phil Wiedenheft here to introduce you to my co-host, Mr. Tom Bond. Each week, Tom and I, we get together to chat about how our days have been going, and together we work through our thoughts on what's going on in pop culture. This week's been a fucking doozy. It has actually given us some reason to hope uh, in regards to last week's kind of shit show of a week. Since we last recorded, the four officers have all been arrested in the death of George Floyd, and thanks to an independent autopsy that was requested by his family, the charges against the officer, Derek Chauvin, the one who kneeled on his neck, were upgraded from third-degree to second-degree murder. And the rioting and looting has almost completely disappeared, but what has thankfully remained has been daily protests in cities across every state in the country, marking the largest single week of civil rights movements since the mid-60s. And some historians have even said that the size of these events and the breadth of ages, races, and classes have all expanded since an earlier era. So that's amazing development, an amazing expanse of the voices who are contributing to this movement. And uh, that movement has led to the development of the Minneapolis City Council saying it will disband the police force. Uh, It's going to focus its funding now on alternative programs. Uh, More details of that are going to come soon. But that move helped spark the hashtag, hashtag defund the police this week, uh, leading to what is now brewing to be the first major reckoning this country has had with itself in regard to policing and systematic oppression. Uh, And it's an incredible movement that proves that protests are working. So that plus a major touchstone of the week was the painting of Black Lives Matter on Washington Street in bright yellow street paint. The lettering is so big it can be read by satellites. This move was approved of by D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser, who is a black woman leading a city that is 50% black, showing support for her community as well as spitting on the asshole who lives a few blocks away. And she even went as far as renaming that 16th Street stretch where the mural is to Black Lives Matter Plaza. All of this was met with anger and controversy from police unions and the president who has uh, been angry and it's been wonderful watching get progressively more angry at these types of taunts. That president, unfortunately, spent the week holding a Bible, not his Bible, to quote him, upside down while somehow offending every single person in just one moment. In that moment, he used tear gas and smoke bombs to clear out a crowd of peaceful protesters and journalists so that he could just make a walk across the street to St. John's Church for a photo op. While there, he offered no words of support, no guidance, no prayers, and no discernible reason for why he was actually there. The move offended journalists and peaceful protesters everywhere, as well as criticism from Christian conservatives who viewed him using the Bible as a prop as somehow the first and only offensive thing he's ever done. Other shit has happened, but uh, we've got a lot to talk about. And with all that going on and more, Tom, how's that day? Congratulations. 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 On? Uh, that opening. Oh, uh, and I'm I'm quoting the end of uh, Neon Genesis. Spoiler alert! Oh, that yeah. was fantastic. Um, I love these intros, Phil. Like I like I was telling you, you got to do these every week now, even if there's no news to report, even if it's you had a good bowel movement. I suspect there will um, always be news to report. Yes, but hopefully not as intense as these last couple of weeks. Although if if we get the the positive outcome, like you said. Protests work, even riots work. Sometimes protests turn violent, and it's sad state of it, but we aren't the people being oppressed day in and day out for years, for decades, for generations. It's not really up to us to say how they protest. I'm happy the rioting and the violence has ceased or almost ceased entirely, um, but it obviously works. It works. That's how the civil rights bill was eventually passed into law in the 1960s after a week of rioting. Um, Second-degree murder charges for Derek 
Sh- is it Sh- Chauvin? Sh- Who gives a fuck? I don't care how his last name is pronounced. Uh, upgraded to second degree murder charges, which is great. Um, the Black Lives Matter street uh, street art and the changing of the street right outside the White House is just such a chef's kiss. He can see it from the window, of, apparently. Of course he can. It's it's right on 16th Street, man. It's yeah. That's it, it's such a nice. I mean, ultimately, it's a move that, you know, symbolically is nice. Uh, I, I've seen responses from, varying responses from people who are very moved by it and think it's great, to who just kind of laugh and say, like, oh, that fucker in the White House has to look at that now, to others saying, yeah, let's not celebrate this. This means nothing in the long run, you know? And I think all all of those responses are valid. I'm curious if it's, um, in the long run, like, a permanent fixture, if it will remain a permanent fixture there. I think that will matter more especially if it's only there for a week then no it won't matter that much but well the the renaming of the street better stick around better stay yeah yeah that better stay artwork several blocks wide on a street that normally does not stay so i would assume it's not gonna last but who knows um i had a suspicion every day it's up there is a good thing i guess i i could be wrong but is that a block that most people don't drive down anyway you like you know how there's streets and Times Square where basically no one only a few vehicles actually drive on there they mostly kind of have people walking on them right I don't know we'll see I don't know I didn't know if it was like one of those promenade type things where people just walk in the street I haven't been to DC in long enough yeah I would have to re-familiarize myself with exactly where it's at, where it is I've only been there a couple times and obviously don't know the specifics but um, yeah man it's been a crazy week um we're recording this on a Monday, which is a little late for us. So if this podcast isn't out on Tuesday, I just want to say on behalf of uh, Phil and myself, sorry, uh, because it is my fault. I delayed us a few days, but who knows? Phil's a fast editor. Um, my week has been okay, dude. Um, it's been hectic. I did go to, uh, I didn't go to the, the large protest yesterday, unfortunately. I did go Friday. Um, to a memorial uh, downtown LA at the Hall of Justice a memorial for all of the black victims of police brutality this one was specifically um, you know ostensibly for um, the 600 plus uh, black men and women who have been killed by police just in LA and just since 2012 but obviously you know there are a lot of signs for George Floyd and it was it would have been Brianna Taylor's birthday that day on Friday so there were a lot of signs for her there were a lot of signs about black trans lives and um, you know a lot of very personal notes so it was just basically two city blocks long a mural of flowers along the sidewalk with some posters signage um, other memorials and it was a very emotional scene man I gotta say Um, it was going on all day long uh, there was the LAPD office in downtown and the city hall uh, district of downtown LA was right next door. So there was a protest happening a block away. And, um, you know, it's been very, uh, very amazing to see the response. But uh, it's just so fucking sad that this is the reason why people have to march, um, especially black people. I feel like, like, where is... <laughs> When has this not been 
a need for them you know like we learn about it in yeah social in history and civics classes in school and you see like the the dogs and the fire hoses and the 1960s black and white news footage and now this and it's just insane i i've been weirdly angrier this week in some respects because or, or i should say frustrated maybe not angry and maybe for the wrong reason in terms of like as someone who grew up very infatuated with black art, you know, like for whatever, I don't know why. Um, but like, I liked hip hop music when I was young and I boys in the hood was on HBO all the time growing up. And I watched that type of shit. And, um, I've just kind of grown up immersed in it. And I think, I think that maybe clued me in more than I think people who maybe aren't into the culture as much. That was kind of my gateway as a suburban middle-class white boy was always through art and through reading and through documentaries and such, that was kind of where I got most of my understanding from. Plus a little bit of just, like you said, in earlier episodes, we've both lived in major cities and had to be around kind of more eclectic groups at different points in our life. And, uh, yeah, so there has been a little bit of frustration on my part in hearing from people and talking to people like where I am simultaneously, simultaneously glad that they are having this kind of awakening, but I'm also kind of like, how did you not realize this is literally all they've been talking about for a hundred years? Like fucking every rapper from Jay-Z to Puff Daddy to every, you know, you have your roots and your Malcolm X's and your, your oppression and your Rodney Kings and you have whatever, like whatever facet of like art you want to dive into. It's like all they've been talking about and all they've been, not all, but like it's a major factor that has been a driving force in that kind of art form. And, I have been a little frustrated with people who are like, oh my God, can you believe this is going on? And I'm like, yeah, I can, you know? And uh, it's been it's been a weird week in that I am very happy, but also shocked and frustrated by white people who I, I didn't realize how much of a blind eye they'd turned to some of this. Yeah, absolutely. Ignorance is bliss. Um, it's, you know, especially we both ended up moving to larger cities, um, New York and LA specifically. And, you know, we both lived... Uh, up in East Harlem in New York, um, LA, you know, is obviously pretty diverse all over, minus a few of the richer neighborhoods, which neither of us live in. But um, yeah, even if you're a sheltered suburban white boy like you and I both are, if you're if you're someone who's a child of the '80s, '90s, up to now, uh, basically since the advent of hip hop and the the international broadening of the NBA, I think those two things, which happened in the 80s and 90s, really extended black culture to the suburbs and to the sheltered white kids, like me growing up in a suburb outside of Boston, or you growing up in, you know, central Ohio. Um, It really allowed black culture to enter our homes. I know that was true for me. Like I had, I had one black friend as a kid, as a young boy. And then I had one black friend in high school. And it wasn't until I moved out of my hometown that I met more people that weren't white, you know? Yeah. Uh, And befriended more people that weren't white, but I always had Michael Jordan on my TV. I loved hip hop just like you did. Um, I watched, I bought the, the VHS of clockers when I was 10 years old and trying to understand what a like film nerddom was. Um, you know, and I think those things when you're a little kid, 
I hope that they ingrain in you an understanding of, you know, just a fundamental understanding of like, what's the difference between you and them, you know, and just, yeah. like Michael, Michael Jordan and, and Michael Jackson, but they were, they were like my heroes as a kid, you know, and they were, they were both black guys and it didn't, it wasn't even a consideration in my head that they were black. It wasn't until later when you're kind of taught the differences that that stuff can seep in insidiously. And um, it is insidious. And you say, you know, you talk to so many people who don't understand that it's been a problem. And it it comes from genuine ignorance. And I think there's a lot of talk going on right now since there has become... The protests have been so overwhelming. I think I really credit the new generation, the millennial generation... We saw it after the Parkland shooting in Florida. The turnout, we're seeing it right now with these protests. Everyone likes to shit on millennials and call them fragile. These kids show up and they care. (laughs) They're so socially engaged. And I find it super impressive and inspiring. And I think they're this generation that, as culture in all facets, sports, entertainment, music as it's become so centralized on the internet and access is everywhere and you can get it from every source no matter where you live, everything has kind of leveled out, I feel like. And I see younger kids who the idea of these biases that are ingrained in our culture for so many generations that are taught to us as we were isolated and on our own in different neighborhoods and after white flight going out to the suburbs, all of that seems to seems to be crumbling a little bit well, you, with yeah, younger people, you, you know? You, and it's really inspiring to see. Yeah, I mean, you hope that... And we talk so much about streaming and stuff, but, like, this week alone, I know I made some recommendations on Instagram, and I've seen a lot of other people who are just like, look, if you don't know about this stuff, it's there's information out there, and it's easier than ever to access those films. And, uh, like, Shell had never... Se- uh, like I said, I'm a film nerd who sees a lot of stuff right away and it's always been important to me so like a lot of stuff that was recommended this week like 13th or i am not your negro or selma or these other kind of black created products that explain the black experience in america uh you know i'd already seen those but watching other people who maybe had thought like oh that's a heavy subject like i don't know if i want to pay attention to that it's been interesting watching them this week kind of being like okay i'll i'll open up my ears and listen and tune into those things and it's nice that now especially compared to like the 90s or something where someone might have had to go to blockbuster and rent roots or something like that now it's like no just watch 13th it's an hour it's 80 minutes of your time or something like just pull it up on netflix it's right there uh and same with some of these other films that are really important and will help you understand so i think it helps with the availability of things to put the impetus on the person and the individual because at this point you can't say like the information isn't out there if you want to find out and you're curious, like there's so much out there, go look. There's a lot of recommendations everywhere on the internet right now. But yeah, I, I, as two white boys who grew up middle class and not knowing personally many black people, maybe having one or two throughout school and high school, you know, it, it's it's invaluable. So they're they're through their art. I, I have found, you know, 
who knows how much information or perspective or understanding and just trying to, and just trying to understand through their voices. So couldn't recommend it. Yeah, couldn't recommend it enough. Uh, and next week we're going to be talking about Spike Lee and his films. And he was a filmmaker who had a huge impact on me throughout basically our entire life. He's the director of Clockers, which you just mentioned. And Do the Right Thing was certainly mentioned a lot. Radio Raheem was mentioned a lot this week. And yeah, we're going to talk a lot of Spike next week. So get ready for that. Get ready for that. I will never forget Phil with his cookies on his belly, watching do the right thing with him. Visiting Phil in Ohio. Hey, man. (laughs) Watching it with motion smoothing while I was stoned out of my mind and... Yeah, it is. and I had to call it out, and you're like, I don't even notice. I was, I was like, well, I'm, I'm pretty high, you know. I don't know. Like, that was back when Phil, back when Phil was stoned and had a belly and didn't notice motion. Oh, dude, I've got a, I've got a belly now. I'm, I'm, I'm both. I've been looking at the reopening stuff in LA pretty with a lot of intrigue and questions because they're saying like gyms can open this Friday, and I'm like, okay, but like, how? What are the restrictions? You know, like I'm, I'm so curious. I even saw the Hollywood Reporter reported today that. They might be opening movie theaters by this Friday or next Friday, depending on the. Wow. So, yeah, I just saw that like right before we were recording. The Hollywood Reporter is like, in order to be ready for like tenant and stuff next week, they're going to be starting to open with 75% capacity, not not even 50. They're saying like, uh, either if you have less than 100, it's based on how many chairs or seats you have in the auditorium, but it's either 75% capacity or less than 100 people or something like that. And I'd have, I'd have to go pull it up to reread it. But, yeah, I've been looking at that at gyms. Uh, haircuts are opening here this week. So I've been thinking a lot like, okay, what's, what am I willing to risk? What am I, I going to do? Am I going to go see? There's nothing out in theaters that I need to go see this week. So I'm, I don't know that I'm rushing out to that. But, you know, I wouldn't mind a haircut. And I am getting a belly. And I wouldn't mind a trip to the gym. Um, I really do miss the gym quite a bit. But it's like, are they going to only let you use certain numbers of equipment versus, like, can't use the sauna you know i don't i don't know yet so i'm still i'm very that's where my head's been at this week of like it seems like everyone's ready to move on from the virus but we can't yet you know it's like it's still here guys we're not post pandemic although did you see so i i wanted to go back to the protest but since we're on this subject now i'll talk about these two uh news stories that popped up today so new zealand um the last known case of the COVID-19 coronavirus, the novel coronavirus, the worst book of all time, the last known case in New Zealand uh, was medically cleared today. So as far as the government knows, there are no cases of the coronavirus in that country right now, which is a great thing. It's a great milestone. Yes. Much smaller country, other, much more liberal, yes, progressive health care. Yeah, um, very interesting. The other, the other news story, which made the rounds today, which... Blew my mind. The World Health Organization, WHO, the organization that is essential to our understanding, (laughs) to medical advancement, to education and treatment all around the world, that Donald Trump wants to uh, stop giving money to on behalf of America. The WHO uh, came out today and said that asymptomatic carriers of this virus, um, it is very rare that they can infect other people, that they can spread this disease to others. Did you see that story? Well, yeah, you sent it to me. I don't think I replied, but yeah, I I think I I didn't click the story, but I saw the headline and I was like, oh, well, that's curious. I guess I'm still kind of in that, like, well, no one knows anything really just yet. So I guess I'm just not going to get my hopes up. 
I am not going to celebrate and say that solves everything. But from what I understand, from what I've seen from this story, this is obviously based off of, uh, at this point, several months worth of data that they've been able to track. Obviously, you know, the best way to capture and kill this disease is um, testing and then contact tracing, right? You find out who's sick and then you find out who they've been in contact with and which one of them are sick and who they've been in contact with and so on and so forth. You play chain mail with it. Um, but obviously there are uh, asymptomatic carriers, some of whom just ended up getting tested because, you know, their country had an abundance of tests and were very on the ball with it, meaning not Americans, <laughs> or, uh, you know, they just happened to get a test in a, in a city that allowed it. Um, like LA is doing now, you don't need to have symptoms if you want to go get tested and, you know, they find out they're sick, even though they didn't feel sick or players, you know, like, um, when Rudy Gobert, the NBA found out that he had the coronavirus and they did contact tracing and they found, Several other players who had been in contact with him who also had the coronavirus. None of those guys ended up having symptoms. Um, the other players who found out that they were sick. So I guess, you know, there are asymptomatic cases that they know about. So uh, through studying all of that data, they've come to the conclusion that it's very unlikely asymptomatic carriers can spread the disease. Like they didn't say it's impossible. And obviously things keep changing and changing. But as we get deeper and deeper into this virus, we're now a full, you know, half a year into this thing. When you consider the outbreak, which started um, in late 2019, that's why it's the COVID-19 case. They, they have much more data now than they did at the end of March when there was still a debate over should we wear masks or not? Can you get it from touching a wall? that another person is touched. Like they're very, they're very further along with their understanding of this disease, how it mutates, how it spreads. So to me, this is a very, I'm, I'm very, very cautiously optimistic about this news because I believe the, the guesstimate that I see floating around the most is about, they believe about 30% of the people infected are asymptomatic. About three out of 10, a little under one third. If that chunk, which is the hardest chunk to find, to locate and isolate, can even spread the disease, that's a that's a dramatic drop-off you're going to end up seeing of uh, new cases coming in. And maybe that's why uh, when the cases started dropping a couple of weeks ago, just use America for an example, you know, we're seeing protests over the past week and change. Places like Vegas now are completely opened up again. Like if you if you look at the casinos in Vegas, yeah, that's insane. It it looks like 2018 or something. Yeah, it's nuts. But if there if there are no spikes in cases in the next 10 to 15 days, considering all the casinos yeah, in Vegas, the considering the protests and, yeah. all around the country, then maybe there's a lot of truth to this story. Hopefully, and uh, yeah, maybe it's maybe I I don't I think herd immunity. I don't want to call it bullshit, but this early in the game, I think there's no way. Um, but maybe, maybe that's a big reason. Maybe the asymptomatic, you know, younger folk who aren't getting sick off of this, maybe they can't really spread it. Maybe they can catch it from someone who's sick, and that's it. That would be amazing. Well, it would be amazing. It would be nice. I guess my whole thing would just still be one. You know, for those of 
on especially like Trump's side who would be celebrating like, see, we told you. Um, well, right now there's still 113,000 deaths uh, in the U.S. alone from this disease or this virus. So it's not as if it wasn't an emergency or wasn't like people overreacted. I think there's going to be some Monday morning quarterbacking next year about like who reacted when and how with based on what we knew. And some people are going to be like, oh, we'll see so-and-so overreacted. And it's going to be like, well, we didn't really know. And as we figured these things out. So that on top of the fact that we are entering the summer months and doctors have said like, we don't know what the summer months are going to do versus the you know, fall, once that starts coming around again, there's still not a vaccine. There's not going to be a vaccine for at least another year. So I want to be cautiously optimistic. Like, hopefully this is true. Um, absolutely. A hundred percent. I would love to get back to a normal life and knowing that there, it's not as an extreme a virus as we maybe initially suspected, but yeah, man, there's still been so many deaths compared to any other thing in American history uh, or any other virus in American history. And I hope people don't, take this good news if it is in fact true as a kind of victory lap to kind of say like well see scientists were wrong when they first started telling us to put masks on or use it as a way to you know denounce the scientists who were still trying to figure it out that's kind of my fear and that seems to be what happens when things get politicized on twitter and everywhere else these days i mean i'll take those idiots claiming some dumb victory even though over a hundred thousand People in America have already died if it means this story is true. I'd rather this story be true and let them pretend yeah. that they're right. Well, yeah, and it, well, it's the same as the job numbers right now. Like, people, Trump literally did, like, a mission accomplished, like, triumphant multiple press conference about the job numbers. And it's like, dude, those aren't permanent newly created jobs. Those are people returning back to their jobs after shutdowns and stuff. So, like, there's still three times the number of unemployed people than there were when you started your presidency. So let's calm the fuck down a little bit. Um, Trump's some Trump's a fucking moron. We know that. Yeah, we don't need to talk about. We don't need to talk about him. He just makes us upset. Well, I do want to. So going back to what you were saying about um, being immersed in black culture and really loving black culture, uh, you know, as you know, people who know me know I'm a giant NBA fan, and uh, Jalen Rose, former NBA player and current ESPN um, commentator and analyst for the NBA had a great quote last week about that entire situation. And it touches on our childhood a lot and a lot of people like us. And he he said, I wish America loved black people the way they loved black culture. And to me, that was the most succinct way of explaining the, the blinders that so many people have um, not even the, you know, the out-out racists out there. That's that's a whole other subsection of America that's unfortunately too big of a subsection. But just like you said, the people who were blissfully ignorant because they live in, in their white privilege, perhaps unwittingly, you know? And I think uh, that's what a lot of the, the conversations have been about the past week is, um, you know, Phil, you were saying earlier you were getting frustrated at some of your seemingly well-intentioned, some seemingly well-intentioned people who apparently had no idea that this was still going on and it was such an epidemic. You know, beyond the fact of like, well, what do you think the Colin Kaepernick protests were about? Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, what have you... why do you think there's such a turnout? I think it's, there's a lot of discussion, especially, you know, you and I can only talk as white people and the white experience. I would never assume to talk about 
how black people are feeling about this. But I think a lot of the discussion among whites or allies in this scenario is, um, you know, we now have to, if you haven't been doing it before, you have to be active. You can no longer be passive about this. You can no longer be a passive supporter and leave it at that. Uh, you can no longer say you're not racist. That's a passive uh, behavior. You you have to be anti-racist because if you're not anti-racist, then you are enabling racist. That's like saying, I don't support Trump, but I'm not going to vote against him. Uh, a vote that's not being used against Trump is a vote for Trump. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, staying silent, the the it, it just can't happen anymore so i think there's a lot that needs to be done uh that allies can do for this movement and this fight for change and social justice and it's about unlearning what we've learned i think american school systems failed white people just like they've failed black people in so many more ways you know um the show Watchmen, that brilliant show that just came out a lot of it um a, a big story point is the Tulsa riots? Yeah, that yeah, happened. I've been thinking a lot about. Years ago. I've been thinking a lot about Watchmen this week. Actually, that that th- those Tulsa riots, I never learned in school. No, that, never. Uh, apparently, I never learned that. In school. Apparently, Almost, according to Damon Lindelof, learning about them was one of the like sparks of the show. He was like, I once again, like you said, I was never taught that. Why was like, how have I never heard about this event in American history? And that, which for those who have seen the show, that is the first scene first episode of the movie or of the show is this Tulsa uh riot slash massacre whatever you want to call it and yeah so he even said like as a white person who created that show learning about that and wondering why he wasn't taught that and how much of that show is crazy prescient right now like with the police officers who have to wear masks because it's so dangerous to be a police officer and so everyone's wearing masks throughout the show and the like yellow lettering that look like basically the black Li- yep. the black lives matter lettering going down Washington Street looks like the lettering for Watchmen, and it could it might as well have said who watches the Watchmen yeah uh, yeah and it's so it's been it's been a weird week for that show where like that came out last year where you're like man that show got it was six months ahead of time like in a crazy way yeah so for those who don't know about it I'm gonna just very briefly summarize it because I guarantee. Someone out there is white and listening to this and does not know what I'm talking about. The Tulsa race riots happened in a town, uh, in a community in Oklahoma that was known as Black Wall Street. And it was a thriving community of black men, women, and children, black families, black businessmen. Um, And there was an altercation that took place between a, a member of that community and a white guy. Uh, who was not a member of the community, who was part of a nearby community, and a large group of white people um, raided the town and burned it down. And they know that minimum uh, 35 black people were killed in that massacre. They, they think the number could be as high as 300. And they basically just turned the place into a ghost town. They demolished it. They killed women, children, men. Um, it was a complete... Uh, it was just a racial annihilation is what it was. And that is such, such a major story. And I I took, I went to school from K through 12th grade. I went to college. Um, I have a degree. I took history classes. I took civics classes. I took political science classes. I was never taught that in school. So I think there's a lot of unlearning what we've been learned 
Um, I think there's a lot of understanding that we are born with uh, not only inherent white privilege, but inherent white supremacy, because that's the system that we are raised in. Um, Just because we are white and born into white supremacy does not make you a racist necessarily. Um, Not every white person yields their white supremacy against others, but we are unwittingly a part of that system, whether we want to be or not, whether we're for or against it. And because of that reality that I think a lot of people are learning and it's super uncomfortable to talk about and to, to learn it, it is, it's just, it's awkward as fuck, but it's the type of work white people have to do because we can learn about racism and being anti-racists, right? We can, we can sit at home and learn about it and educate ourselves, but black people don't have that luxury. They learn it by existing. And that's the difference. And that's the inherent systemic problem that we have. So I think it's, it's on us as white people to educate ourselves, to be better, to be allies and to be active. And yeah, passivity is no longer, um, it's no longer okay. I mean, it never was, but yeah, so it, it really is not now. It officially <laughs> is not. It's a decree. How's that day pod fully endorses no more passivity forever and ever. That's right. Silence is violence. And I, on that note, kind of, I guess, blending with the news of this week and the first topic that we're going to dive into, uh, one of the other events that happened this week was that the rapper Killer Mike gave a press conference in Atlanta, which is incredibly emotional and powerful. And in that speech, he gives the black community at the kind of the heights of the the rioting and the looting of last week, he gives them words of encouragement. And I, I, I would encourage everyone to watch the video in its entirety it's about eight minutes long in it he encourages them not to burn their houses down but he tells them he would rather them shelter people in their houses and use the time that they have to plot plan mobilize and strategize as he says multiple times in the video and killer mike is a rapper slash uh political activist slash spokesman and all around incredible rapper and one of the things we want to talk about this week jumping right into it RTJ4, Run the Jewels, a black man and a white man who create hip-hop that is politically minded and very much about this time. And they released an album earlier this week. They released it early, uh, a couple days early, because it was just so so about what we were talking about this week. So with that said, let me drop a track right now of Run the Jewels from RTJ4. Mastered economics, cause you took yourself from squalor. Mastered academics, cause your grace said you were scholar. Mastered Instagram, cause you can instigate a follow. Look at all these slave masters posing on your dollar. Get it? Look at all these slave masters posing on your dollar. Get it? Look at all these slave masters posing on your dollar. Get it? Look at all these slave masters posing on your dollar. Get it? Look at all these slave masters. So, Run the Jewels, Uh, RTJ4, the album, is the obviously fourth collaboration between producer, beatmaker, and rapper LP, alongside his political activist and one of the best rappers alive, Killer Mike. Each album is full of aggressive, high-energy hip-hop beats that I would say mix a lot of techno influences. Uh, They're pretty bass-heavy, but it's still very rock at times. They frequently collaborate with Zach De La Roca, who's uh, of Rage Against the Machine, and they're even supposed to tour with Rage Against the Machine this year before Corona kind of canceled everything. But they're a rap group in the Rage tradition of mixing 
aggressive kind of like fuck yeah pump your fist type of music with political commentary and the pair of rappers they usually trade off verses throughout every song they often mix political angry commentary with uh calls for uprising and that's all kind of mixed with vulgar and childish humor and some other pretty hilarious moments throughout and this latest album was recorded before the events of the previous couple weeks but they dropped it early and i think they knew that people needed to hear what they recorded and what they recorded is so prescient about what we're seeing in the news and hearing about every day uh, in their lyrics and what they're talking about. They couldn't have been more prepared for this moment and have exactly what everyone wants to hear right now. That angry mix of political and uh, angry feeling is mixed with enough levity, I think, to make you want to keep listening. Not to mention, plus, if you're like a hip hop fan, the flows and the beats. So, um, yeah, we'll dive into individual tracks and stand up verses that really touch on the political moment. But, uh, Tom, tell me about Run the Jewels. Were you a big fan before? And what was your reaction to hearing this album? I'm a huge fan of Run the Jewels. I think, uh, in terms of uh, collaboration, I think they're uh, maybe the best thing going in hip hop for me. Um, yeah, probably. I, I really enjoy, uh, the, the couple of albums that um, Mad Lib and Freddie Gibbs have put out, but Run Run the Jewels are it's special. It they they have a very effortless quality to their albums. That like you said, this is their fourth one now, but first one in a while. Run the Jewels three came out in late twenty sixteen, um, so it's been a couple of years. So it's nice to have them back. But I think they are uh, just one of the most purely consistent. Um, hip-hop acts of the last decade all four albums are great it's just varying degrees of great if you want to pick your favorites out. yeah they're all like they're really um, tight like 12 track ish like 45 ish minute albums that are just like yeah incredibly like you said tight and consistent that's definitely a word there. they they both both guys lp and killer mike each take a verse or two each on pretty much every track they have a lot of great guest stars um that uh you know, now that they're up to their fourth album, they've seen some uh, repeat customers. You mentioned Zach. They have Gangsta Boot. Boots has been on a couple albums. Um, this album had Two Chains. It had Pharrell Williams. They get some really great artists to collaborate with them. But yeah, I'm a huge Run the Jewels fan. I was super excited for this album. Um, they released it two days early, like you said. I think uh, smartly so. And before anyone wants to call it, uh, you know, cynically call it a calculated move or something to capitalize on Killer Mike's speech and the movement, first off, how dare you? Um, but secondly, they released this album for free on their website. You know, it's not like they're trying to get, they're not trying to cash in on police brutality or anything like that. And uh, you see it in the lyrics. And it's not like Run the Jewels 4 is a new direction for them where they're suddenly talking about these issues. You know, this is, this is par for the course for run the jewels. They, they're very politically minded, socially conscious, aware specifically about police brutality, about black violence. Um, killer Mike in particular, who grew up as a drug dealer is very outspoken about the tendency in hip hop to glamorize the drug game. And, you know, he talks about it, uh, you mentioned that they have some, you know, they, they can have some goofy lyrics about, like, sex, drugs, violence, and stuff. But, you know, in general, when Killer Mike is really on point talking about serious issues when he wants to, uh, he very openly condemns that lifestyle and talks about how we're, we're 
you know, hip hop is sending the wrong message to young black kids in terms of uh, glamorizing drug dealing on the street and shit like that. So I think it they're great they're a great group to root for and to like. They make it very easy to like them because they're so talented. LP is a producer, both of them is rappers and lyricists, but the message they put out, the sense of fun that they have, the re-listenability of their tracks, um, and yeah, Killer Mike's activism. They're just what's not to like. And Personally, I have listened to all four of their albums many, many times. And I like all four a lot. I was actually on a big Run the Jewels kick um, for like a month leading up to this album. Just getting excited for it. But I have listened to Run the Jewels 4, I think has been out for less than a week. right? It's been out for like four days or something. And I think I have listened to this album front to back it 15 times, maybe. I can't stop listening to it. I think it is my favorite album of theirs i think uh we both raved about fiona apple earlier this year and i still very much love fetch the bolt cutters i think it's instant classic this may be my new favorite album of the year it's close but it's definitely one of those two i think this is i think this is their their masterwork a couple tracks in particular and a couple verses within those tracks to be even more particular what do you think yeah i um I, like you said, they've been so consistent that it's been hard for me to just kind of instantly declare that this is the best because, well, the fucking, yeah, one, two, and three are amazing it's, as well. It's not yeah. instant, to be fair. Uh, 50, 15 times in five days. Yeah. <laughs> I've been listening to it a lot. Yeah, yeah. It, it's an easy listen. Like we said, it's only 11 songs, 40 minutes, and they're all pretty upbeat, energetic songs. So it's, you know, they, they kind of fly by. They're not, they're all around three to four minutes long. They're not super long tracks. Um, and they're an easy, fun listen. I've listened to them for years for a variety of reasons, both because they're like politically engaging, the production by LP is incredible, but also just like as someone who likes to run at the gym, like they're just so fucking, it gets you jazzed, man. It gets you energetic. It wants you, makes you want to pump your fist. And yeah, I've been a huge fan for years. I saw them. I think I even mentioned this since we've been back recording, but I saw them the, one of the first tour stops of RTJ three. And I, I just remember it was so early that they had not memorized all the lyrics yet. So like they kept, there was multiple songs where like, oops, sorry. And they had to like apologize and kind of like restart. And that show was still one of the most incredible shows I've ever seen. It was so high energy. So fucking just like the entire room was shaking. It was, I was on the balcony and there were bleachers, like metal bleachers kind of lining the balcony that everyone was on. And Everyone had beer. There was multiple bars in this place. There was even a bar upstairs next to the balcony, so everyone had quick access to liquor. And I just remember everyone on these bleachers just shaking throughout these songs, and beer was being spilled everywhere to the point that it felt like everyone was just like on this slippery metal like slide, kind of just like holding on to one another as we just jumped up and down and rocked out to this music. It's such kind of there's an there's a anger and a release that is in it that comes from the political stuff but just also the production and like you said none of this political stuff is new there's lyrics on rtj2 with uh zach de la roca of rage against machine like uh when you guys gonna unite and kill those police motherfuckers you know like he's been talking about rising up against the police for years now and this is not new ground for them and it's they're just i think the right album at the right moment and it, it's incredibly 
especially, you know, I guess we can dive into some actual tracks, but like when I heard the second verse of walking in the snow, my jaw hit the floor, you know, uh, Mike's verse on that, because, you know, I, I guess I'll, I'll play that right now. I'll just play Mike's verse so people can hear what he says. Play the whole yeah. thing. Just play the whole well, thing. Well, you know, there, there's... From, well, I mean, from Mike's... I was, from okay, Mike. I was going to say, there's copyright things, but okay, I'll play I'll play what I can. All right, here we go. Gangsta boo, run the jewels. We back on our shit, and it's cold as The way I see it, you probably free us from the ages one to four. Around the age of five, you shipped away for your body to be stored. They promise education, but really they give you tests and scores. And they predict in prison population by who's going the lowest. And usually the lowest scores, the poorest, and they look like me. And every day on the evening news, they feed your fear for free. And you so numb, you watch the cops choke out a man like me. Until my voice goes from a shriek to whisper, I can't breathe. And you sit there in the house on couch and watch it on TV. The most you get is a Twitter rant and call it a tragedy. But truly the travesty, you've been robbed of your empathy. Replaced it with apathy, I wish I could magically. Fast forward the future so then you can face it and see how fucked up it'll be. All right, so that was Walking in the Snow. That was just an example of some of the, the lyrics. And as you can hear in that speech or in, the, in that verse, he's using quotes like, I can't breathe. And it, it really, I think, makes you, the listener, realize, one, that he did not record this a week ago. He recorded this months ago. And this is not about this first death of George Floyd. This is about many years of deaths and uh, deaths that have had the exact same quotes like I can't breathe um, in reference to Eric Garner. And, you know, it, it, it was just one of those staggering moments. I, I don't know if it was a verse that stood out to you right away on your first listen or if you came across it later. But I think on my first listen that through, that was one of the verses that instantly kind of just smacked me across the face in terms of just thinking, wow, this album's special or, and unique or the right. Yeah, that uh, that album or I'm sorry, that that um, verse from Walking in the Snow, I think, is the... If you had to pick one singular standout, one thing this album's going to be remembered for, it's that Killer Mike track. I think that's the... You know, I what I love about both these guys, and I think LP, he's a great producer. I think he is somehow, somehow, because Killer Mike is so great, I think LP is very underrated as a lyricist. He's fantastic. He's gotten better too, um, I think. Yeah, he is. Uh, there, there are a couple tracks here that um, he's clearly the standout in, in my opinion. Um, not walking in the snow, but in, in a lot of them, like uh, even leading up to walking in the snow, you know, Goonies versus ET. He's got maybe his best verse in the entire album. But walking in the snow, Killer Mike. Uh, you know, part of his talent is that he can really. He can change his flow and his tempo. He can he can rap really fast. He can slow things down. He's got a lot of melody inside him, just naturally. And you can tell that this is a very meaningful verse for him because of the way it starts. It's very it's very uh it's it's very pronounced and slow and like really trying to get your attention. Like I'm trying to tell you something here. Yeah, well, here I'll, like I'll read talking about from the ages one to four. Yeah, I'll read it really quickly and not try to emphasize like the rap of it. But the way I see it, you're probably freest from ages one to four. 
Around the age of five, you're shipped away for your body to be stored. They promise education, but they give you tests and scores, and they're predicting prison populations by who scores by who's scoring the lowest. And usually the lowest scores the poorest, and they look like me, and every day on the evening news, they, fear, they feed you fear for free. And, you know, he keeps going on. I already played it. But, yeah, it's this very political notion of, like, as soon as you're a kid, you're, you know, it's inundated from you, and there it's this school to prison pipeline that's going on and yeah he tackles so much in just a few verses yeah this is this is my philosophy this is what i've come to understand about what it's like to live in america as a black person and i noticed um a website that i i go to a lot um you know or, or the app that i go to a lot is the genius lyric app on my phone a lot of times especially when i'm listening to the new music you know because they obviously have the lyrics but they also have little um annotations um sometimes from the artists themselves like if you've gone and looked up the hamilton the musical the lyrics on genius lin-manuel miranda's quotes are all over that which is super cool um so anyway i was doing that on a, a couple listens of this album and uh i just happened to go on the genius uh the front page of the app on saturday and Walking in the Snow is the number one trending song there. Um, so it's clearly hitting a lot of people, not just us. That, I think, it, you know, it's basically all about, as great as Killer Mike's verses as well, it's really all about that, or as great as LP's verses on that track, it's really all about Killer Mike's message there. I think it's really hitting home. Uh, there are other songs where they're they're very topical and they're tackling social issues and injustices that they're seeing, but this one in particular is just so exactly on point and for the moment and uh a, an interesting thing so as phil knows and i think i've mentioned it in previous episodes since we've come back uh i've been starting to do deep dives on different artists um been getting into like listening to their studio albums front to back i did rem and then i just finished doing u2 uh i started with those two in particular because scott ackerman and adam scott have a, a podcast where they go through the albums of both of those artists, right? So um, I was re-listening to this episode where they end up getting uh, all four members of U2 to sit down and talk to them for like an hour and a half. And they're, you know, it's a wide-ranging discussion. It's really funny and enlightening because it's two fans interviewing them, not journalists or something like that. So I highly recommend it. It's called You Talking U2 to Me if anyone wants to check out the podcast. Uh, but in the episode where they interview, the band, they... they um, get on to talking about Sunday Bloody Sunday at one point. And, uh, you know, Bono's talking a lot about the genesis of the song and how it was a protest song. And I forget which of the Scots, the host, asks him. Uh, you know, it's kind of a shame. You don't see that many protest songs being written in America right now. And this was back in, like, late 2015. So I don't even know if Trump had announced his candidacy. I'd have to look at the date, but it's, like, basically right before... Trump came over and took took the country over, unfortunately. And Bono starts talking about, um, you know, I feel that tide shifting. You know, people are really frustrated right now. Uh, a lot of people seem to be losing hope. And I feel like, you know, you had Pussy Riot overseas. I think you're going to see something like that happen in America. And I think it's going to happen pretty soon. And I think in particular it's going to happen in hip-hop. I think hip-hop is going to bring back the protest song. I feel it coming. He's like, I don't. I have no reason to believe that other than it's just a, a feeling that I have. 
And he was absolutely right. Like, when you look at what Run the Jewels has been putting out the last several years, and then you look at songs like Meek Mill just put out a song this week that directly has a Donald Trump quote to lead it off, like him saying to black people, what do you have to lose? Your unemployment sucks. No one takes care of you. What do you have to lose by voting for me? And it ends with Meek Mill on CNN talking about his life. And you would have a gun too if you had to deal with the shit I had to deal with. Or you have like the song of 2018 was This Is America. Yeah, that's, yeah that's, I was Gambino. just about to mention that. And, yeah. Um, but yeah, Bono was totally right. Like the hip hop right now is where we're going to find the protest song and the song that's like speaking to America and its ills, you know? And it's just, it's really cool. I mean, it sucks that the reason why it's had to come back, although that's a reason that's been around for decades, like we touched about, but it's really cool that uh, guys like Childish Gambino and Meek Mill and Killer Mike and LP are leading that charge. I think it's awesome. Yeah, it's not like, it was in the 60s or 70s or something where you're going to have like, we're not going to have John Mayer write a protest song that like moves the nation, you know, or these like, I mean, he, he may write it, but it's yeah, not move you know, the compared to like, this is America or something, com- you know, you, our, this is America is essentially the blown in the wind of our generation or something, you know, it's not, yeah. it's not going to sound like how it used to sound. The, the protest songs are going to be different, but yeah, it's not going to be guy white guys with acoustic guitars singing softly about how we can all come together. It's going to be probably angrier, probably a little bit more like you said hip hop, a little bit more modern. It's it's going to be different. So, it's it's it'll be It's going to be it's going to be danceable. Yeah, or, or something something. I mean, Bruce Springsteen, Bruce Springsteen can try to write one or Neil Young, you know. People will be like, "Oh, that's really cute." Well, I was actually <laughs> speaking of Bruce, I was actually listening earlier this week to a song that he released in 1999. I'm going to have to look up who the victim was, but the song is called American skin 41 shots. And it's not a song. I was just reading about that song on the old Wikipedia. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's a song that uh, it was on his essential, like three, the essential Bruce Springsteen, which was like a three disc album that I had in high school. And that was how I kind of really first got into it. But it first appeared on some live stuff. It was never on an album. And basically, the the song is forty one shots, and it's about how, um, the like the chorus is: is it a gun? Is it a knife? Is it a wallet? This is your life, and it's about these police who brutally. This man was pulling out his wallet. They thought he was pulling out a gun, a black man, obviously, and they shot him forty one times. And it was about like, even if he did have a gun, forty one times seems a bit excessive, guys. And that was clearly even if he had even if he had a rocket. Yeah, it's like forty one. It's excessive, and so this song is about basically. You can get killed living in your American skin and getting shot 41 times. And it's a song he wrote in 1999. And there were like security problems at Madison Square Garden because the NYPD thought he had attacked them and they wouldn't do security for his shows and stuff like that because he had written the song that was in some way critical of the actions of them. So this is it's all been going on for so long, but it, it is curious to see where the the protest song heads. Uh, you know, I don't think Bruce Springsteen's going to be, I'm sure he'll keep writing them, as you said, but we'll see what the, the youth of the nation actually attaches itself to. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's clearly hip-hop's paving the way for the future, which it has for a few decades now. And it's, it's amazing when you look at a band like Run the Jewels, you know, especially guys like, you know, LP's been around for 20 years. Same with Killer Mike. He was and, another, yeah. Yeah, like, they were both around in the... Like, Killer Mike was around at the the beginning of Outcast. Yeah, LP was around with 
Biggie and Brooklyn. They're, they're like both in their forties. Yeah, they're two guy, two fatties who have like, yeah. who've been who have been around for decades and are really in a position, in an authoritative position within that genre to pick up the torch. And it's really cool that they're doing that because you know they had already proved uh, their first record came out in 2013, right? 2012, 2013, something like yeah. that. Their first run yeah, of the yeah, yeah. record, I mean. And they they didn't need to start this band. Like, neither of them needed that for their career. They were both super successful at that point. They had been uh, in hip-hop for 15 years each at that point, even longer, I think. Uh, they, You know, they've talked about it, and they, they've said, you know, this was just a way for us to get together we really liked working with each other i know lp had produced some stuff for killer mike before including killer mike's one of killer mike's solo tracks i think the album right before the first run the jewels he has a track uh that lp produced called reagan yeah that if if people haven't listened to you have to check out the song it's from his 2011 or 2012 album that the name i'm blanking it's, on it's, unfortunately but the track is called Reagan. yeah it's called rap music r-a-p music all right, yes, that's right. RAP music. Um, LP produced that, and then they ended up getting together with Run the Jewels. And it, I feel like you know it kind of started as a way for them to dick around. If you listen to their first album, it's much more uh, kind of goofy and fun and lighthearted, and it's their shortest record. It's only like half an hour, like it's almost EP quality in terms of length. And then Run the Jewels Two comes out, yeah, almost right away a year later. Yeah, Two is really where they I think. If there, I think one is probably like you said the least serious of the four. Yeah, two to me was my favorite up until, and like I said, you know the the album's a week old. Who knows? My opinion may change, but two had always been my favorite uh, personally. I think it's the best mix of, uh, you know, really fun. Like I said, they 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 make hip hop music that manages to be very danceable. Like if they, they just have great melodies, the production, the beats are fantastic and the flow of both of them, it, they just have great inherent melodies. Like they, you can tell they, they both have rhythm. Fat guys normally do. Don't forget that. Everybody. That's right. Biggie but, baby. Um, yeah, I think, I think their second album is when I really noticed them. And we're like, Oh shit, this is, this is awesome music. I was a fan of the first one, but I, I thought it was just going to be like a one-off vanity project or something. Yeah, I'm the same. Second um, one, I think, is where most people started taking them seriously. Yeah, like you mentioned that uh, that song with Zach, uh, which is one of my favorite Run the Jewel tracks of of any record. Close um, your eyes and count to fuck. Close your eyes and count to fuck. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that, that track has so many great tracks on it like oh my darling don't cry is great all my life light sheet steel early with boots is so good all due respect with travis barker <laughs> they bring travis barker on and it kicks ass love again with gangsta boo is a fucking hilarious song um angel duster is this like epic track closer i mean i know they have a bonus track after it but um also just side note they've done it since i mean i guess e- even the first track with that christmas song uh, it's a Christmas it's, it's fucking a, miracle. Yeah, it's or a whatever. Christmas fucking miracle, yeah. Um, no one else right now does a better closing track to an album than Run the Jewels. Yeah, let's talk about this one, this sax-heavy uh, epic called A Few Words for the Firing Squad.
Yeah, but so before we get into that completely, I think it would be uh, it would be an incomplete discussion to not talk about the final track of Run the Jewels 3, which is called A Report to the Shareholders slash Kill Your Masters. So we've talked about um, all three albums, uh, plus the, the first. Um, the first one's like 30 minutes. The second one's just under 40 the latest is around 40. Uh, Run the Jewels 3 is the longest. It's a little over 50 minutes. But they're normally, every track is normally this like three, three and a half minute range. They very rarely go over four minutes. Um, but the last track of Run the Jewels 3 and RTJ4 are both like pushing seven minutes long, right? And they seem to be these very pointed codas about. Uh, whatever in particular they've been wanting to talk about. So Run the Jewels 3, it ends with that song, A Message to the Shareholders slash Kill Your Masters. It's like a six and a half minute epic track. LP's talking about like, you know, the reason why they they decided to get together. Like they were just going to hang out. They liked each other. They thought they'd have some laughs. They realized there was something more important that they could do with this group together like they could actually have a message and get it out there to people and be successful doing it um and it it really you know run the jewels three throughout the album uh obviously they're they're talking about certain social issues like police brutality is a big theme and run run the jewels three as well like killer mike's past life and his basically like acknowledging the trauma he's dealt with as a drug dealer and how it doesn't go away um you know, like I was saying earlier, all the all the rappers who may glamorize uh, being like a former dealer and getting out of it, and now becoming a successful millionaire is like don't don't listen to that. Like it's not glamorous and fun. Like I have scars from it. Um, and basically, the last track of that record is a message to the people listening. Um, you know, it's not just black people who are who are slaves here. Basically, like we're all being. Uh, held down by the the power elite in this nation right so that's kind of the coda to run the jewels three so that theme comes back in the new record uh which is another another closing track that's what's what does it feel like six six and a half seven six forty two six forty two so that song is called a few words for the firing squad in parentheses radiation and just so i'm not hogging the conversation why don't you take the the baton and start talking about that one. Well, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it, it, like you, you were saying, it's a kind of final message in some ways, the most political. And it's also the most epic in terms of the soundscape. I think a lot of the songs on the record are very beat heavy, very kind of energetic. We've talked a lot about rage against the machine and that kind of, I mentioned, you know, pump your fist type of music. This one is, a saxophone it's very atmospheric it's kind of like i don't know like a noir or something like that i don't know how to just yeah well it's you know their beat even when they're talking about serious shit their beats are generally pretty fun and uplifting very upbeat both of these final tracks are kind of downer sounds like they're not necessarily sad but they're more like like languid you know like a saying a saying goodbye type of sound. Yeah, and and, and it's both sense. of them reflecting on themselves personally and the future and it's them trying I think to reckon with what's been going on for the last few years and where they want to go and when I look at the lyrics I see a lot of stuff 
uh, you know, there's a lot of pain in the track. And I think uh, a lot of political pain, a lot of personal pain. I know that LP in particular has talked a lot about sobriety and getting sober. And I think that mixed with that kind of need for seeking an apology is a big part of LP's perspective on this. And Mike's anger at the political machinations of this entire country come through and how that has affected the personal on top of the the political and it's just this yeah it's an epic track like we said it's almost seven minutes it's it differentiates it differentiates itself from the rest of the album in terms of complexity and also changing uh, you know in terms of changing styles midway through the the track kind of shifts and has sketches and is very layered whereas some of the other most of the tracks are pretty simple like you get the beat you like it if you like that beat, you'll probably like the song. This one is more of a journey. Yeah, and it, like you said, it goes almost into a sketch. The first track of the album is called Yankee and the Brave, parentheses part four to let you know it's the fourth album. LP's from Brooklyn, where the Yankees, I mean, Yankees playing Bronx, but I believe he's from Brooklyn. And uh, the Atlanta Braves are obviously in Atlanta, Georgia, where Killer Mike is from. They call themselves Yankee and the Brave, and they kind of play it off like almost they're like this TV show like buddy cop but instead of cops are like crooks on the run against the cops or something like that so it's this very upbeat opening track and it's very more about like the superficial type of lyrics that they do a lot of times about um like there's fat jokes in there there's talk about like the cops aren't going to take them alive they're on the run they got a bag full of money and they're going to hit the road and then the last track after this very um uh this very kind of downbeat uh, track where it's a, about a lot of reflection and kind of the coda of what their messages have been all about and what they want to do with the band, where they see themselves going. Killer Mike, obviously, a big theme is him, his activism and him talking about like it may eventually get him killed, but he's not going to shut up. Um, it has this instrumental kind of sad sax breakdown, and then it cuts back to like this TV narrator talking about these two guys and all they have are each other. They may kill themselves, but they're brothers and you can't knock them down and they're Yankee and the brave. And it has this almost like fake out TV show ending, um, almost like turning the whole thing into a fantasy or something like that. Like to, to try to end on a, maybe like a sarcastic or humorous note. But to me, it's almost like it's almost, it's, I mean, obviously it's their way of uh, tying the album in nicely as a coda, you know, tying back into the opening track. Yeah. But since that opening track is so superficial and fun, and the majority of the rest of the album isn't, the the rest of the album is very topical. That almost it almost feels like that opening album and that ending there, that ending note of the final track are like tricks into making you feel okay. Yeah. Like like it's like the, don't worry you can just go live in this fantasy if that's what you really wanted to and like if you don't if you don't want to worry about all the other shit we're talking about. yeah and the albums are fun and they're funny and the verses are funny Very and fun. i think that's yes. what kind of what makes them easy to re-listen to it's not like like you said you've listened to this album a bunch i've listened to it a bunch over the last however many days since it's been out and it's an easy listen and part of that is because the beats kind of allow you to enjoy it and there's also enough humor kind of breaking up the serious talk that as much as you're moved by the serious talk, occasionally just a minute later, there's a joke that'll make you laugh enough to kind of remain engaged, remain enjoying yourself. So it's a weirdly very serious album where you can actually enjoy yourself. And, but also, like you said, very serious and political and very intelligent. These are two intelligent guys. You have that Yankee and the brave, that North versus South, that white versus black kind of 
even though it's through baseball, it also has all these other implications that I think run through all of the work, even when the artists themselves are not referencing it. It's just kind of inherent in their being. And they remain one of, like you said, the best outfits in hip hop right now. They're just fascinating for all kinds of reasons, both the music itself and the fact that they're like guys in their mid forties who are just now hitting their peak and just now hitting their stride in a way. And it's, it's interesting to see how hip hop's changing and becoming the political, the voice of the political and compared to the Bob Dylan's of the world of the past versus the, you know, like I said, we've talked, we, it's, I, it's hard to talk about this album outside of just general praise with like the, the production, but like, even if this album was just about nothing, LP's production would still be amazing. It'd still be a fun listen, but oh, absolutely. yeah. And so on top of that, it's just, it's, it's kind of melting everything. And I think, like you said, there is a case certainly for you for Fiona Apple to have the album of the year, but this one's very much, it, it feels in a way as much of the moment, if not more, but who knows that moment keeps changing. It's been such a crazy year, a crazy week. Who the hell knows two months from now where we'll be or what we'll think the year represents. Yeah, it definitely feels like if you want to talk about like what album or what track speaks to the moment the way This Is America did, I think obviously you you side with Run The Jewels, but that's not to discredit Fiona and what she's done. She, she obviously put out an amazing record earlier this year as well. But yeah, it's, it's just great to see. Um, uh, yeah, I'm a huge fan. I think this is an instant hip-hop classic. It's arguably my favorite album of the year so far. And it's cool, like you said, to see these guys in their 40s who grew up in like the Southern rap, the ATL scene and the gangster rap scene. And now they're, uh, they're, they're torchbearers for this new, this new era of social justice and hip hop. It's cool to see. All right. And on top, uh, we haven't mentioned it yet. So I just wanted to throw out there before we kind of move on to other subjects. My favorite track is track three. Ooh, la la. And which I'm not even sure is the most, uh, that's track two, I think. No track two. It's track one is Yankee and the brave track two is Ooh, la la and track three. Oh, I'm sorry. I meant, Track three, Out of Sight, is my favorite track. Um, yeah, Ooh La... Yeah, oh, okay. yeah, sorry, sorry. Ooh La La was the first single. Track three, Out of Sight, is my favorite song on the album, which I don't think is necessarily the most politically minded or serious song, but it's just like the fucking beat's incredible, and I can't hear it without... It's the flow of Mike, I think, on top of everything else. There's a couple times on Run the Jewels 3 where his flow would just hit a point where I can't listen to it without my whole bottle, my whole body kind of wiggling. And it's yeah. just like shit. Like I don't. You just kind of start shaking alongside of this kind of flow he hits. And out of sight has a few of those moments early on where, as soon as I heard it, I was like, "This is gonna be one of my top five favorite tracks of the entire year, no matter what." Here come the menaces to sobriety. Like what? What? Super thug is dumping what? on the cut. What? 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 My motherfucking Uzi weighs a ton. Hit the drum till you hear it go. But I'm a bum Run, run. Piety just really isn't us. What a rush. See you cutting up a pie. That's my lunch. Run. Your motherfucking pockets when I come. It's an honor to be robbed by Denise's only son. Yeah. Give a ready, baby boy. Bitty moving extra heavy with your Chevy. Gotta get it. Eat spaghetti with the mop. So vegan bitches feed them dick cause they don't eat no steak and lobster. Sosa was my hero. Tony, it's just a fucking yeah then uh, yeah we touched on it there it's very danceable hip-hop which you don't always get um i think for me uh obviously that uh mike's verse and walking the snow um is essential in terms of favorite track i don't know i love holy calamifuck track four um i do really like just 
the the one with Pharrell Williams and when they bring Zach De La Rocha back. Look at all these slave masters posing on your dollar. The refrain of that. Yeah, that, that's um, one of my favorites as well. Yeah, but I think uh, it's not the most interesting answer because it was the first single. But Ooh La La is ugh, it's so good. I love it. So it's an much. easy listen. It's fun, and it, it, I and think it's such. A I good think it track, does man. everything that we're talking about in terms of it's three minutes. It's really tight. It's well produced. It's fun and easy to listen to. It'll play well on trailers. Like yeah, and also pers- just personally, you know, ooh la la, they give credit, um, feature credit to Greg Nice and DJ Premier. DJ Premier is obviously the DJ from the great New York hip hop duo Gangstar, Gangstar. Yeah. and you know, this is obviously the beat on ooh la la is a reworking of a of a Gangstar track. Yeah, which I, um, I think at first I was DJ a little Premier. disappointed when I heard the track because I was like, ooh, Gangstar is going to be on this whole thing, but it's just yeah, it's just a sample. Looking for M's like I lost a friend. Jump out of my bed like red up red. You go hold the egg. Way to bring the check. When we talk, we collision the car. Keep us in your thoughts. Fully dressed at the crack of dawn. Weapons heading off. I can hear them from the block. See them creeping through the fog. Season's greetings, now feeding season can start. Oh my God. Look alive. Looking like I live life on a crooked line. Doing fine. You want maximum stupid. I am the guy. First of all, fuck the fucking law. We is fucking raw. Stay top top. Oysters on the hands. Yeah, it's it's a sample of Dwick, which is a great gangster track. Um, but they they play with it and make it their own. Um, but it also the way they rework it, it really reminds me. The opening really reminds me of Shimmy Shimmy Ya by Old Dirty Bastard. And then yeah, I can hear that. they they actually call him out in one of the verses. They they give a little Shimmy Shimmy Ya ODB reference. So I'm like, okay, they definitely hear it too. Awesome. Yeah. And I felt I was very proud of myself. <laughs> So I, I don't know. I, I honestly I love tracks one through seven. I've listened to on a loop. I think they're fantastic. And then the final track, a few words for the firing squad. I've also listened to a, a bunch of times. Um, but yeah, I guess I would have to say ooh la la if I had to pick number one. But just just is also really really great. All right, that works for me. So obviously from both of us, it's a huge recommendation. Uh, go check it out. Go watch the Killer Mike video of him talking. It's eight minutes long. It's great. Go listen to the album. Go listen to previous Run the Jewels albums. There's only three of them, and they're all pretty quick listens and pretty good fun listens. Depending on what mood you're in, you'd be surprised how much they kind of work for it. If you want to work out to them, you can. If you want to be very politically minded and serious and intellectual, you can do that as well. So go go check out the album. It's one of the best of the year. It's uh, very politically conscious about what's going on in this moment, and Killer Mike's someone you should listen to uh, in terms of the politics of this moment. He's been ahead of the moment for quite some time. So he's, he in particular, I think LP is incredible and responsible for the beats, but I, I, there's something about killer Mike who I feel like comes out of the project looking like he's going to come out being one of the best MCs ever, you know, or I agree. All right. With that said, go, go listen to RTJ four. Let's move on. Oh my God, Tom. As if there's not enough going on in the world. You made me watch one of the most heady, fucking weird, out of this world TV shows I've ever seen. Let's talk about the final stretch and the final movie of Neon Genesis Evangelion.
All right. So today we are talking about the finale. We're going to dive into, we've spent the last couple of weeks diving into Neon Genesis Evangelion for those of you who have been listening. And, you know, we, we knew, I guess we've talked about in previous episodes that from Tom's awareness that people had told who had told him about the show, the show was going to get weird. We were told that it was going to get weird and that a lot of the stuff that we were you know, prepared for, you know, or the stuff that we were seeing in the early episodes, those, we were told those are going to all dissipate and the finale is going to be very strange. Little did we know just how much of an understatement that was going to be. So for this week, we finally watched episodes 20 through 22 through 26, as well as end of Evangelion, which is the 90 minute follow-up feature that acts as a, I guess a series finale. It isn't really a standalone feature by any means. I, I imagine it would mean nothing to anyone who hasn't seen the series. So don't go watching that first if you're trying to figure out the show. Um, it's hard to put exactly into words what happens in these final stretches of episodes. There's, in a way, so much that happens plot-wise that it's not even necessarily a plot development, but it's just so many ideas that are being placed. The story uh, kind of began as a kaiju mecha action anime and this final stretch has evolved into almost complete abstraction. And it's a deep dive into psychoanalysis and the human condition, the meaning of existence, and the I believe the creator's personal battles with depression and overcoming that. And in this stretch of episodes, there are Oedipal ideas. There's religious references to practically a dozen different belief systems. You know, all the while there's like gore and nudity, there's action, and every tool of animation that's available to animators including live action by the way on top of that so tom where do we begin how do we begin uh do we even try to explain broadly what happens in the end because you know i found summaries but i'm curious what your emotional or intellectual or experience was watching it at first and we'll kind of maybe try and explain it from there but yeah what was your reaction to this crazy stretch of episodes in this final run or i guess this final movie I know exactly where we should start. All right. Um, a 14-year-old boy coming in his hands while looking at his naked, passed-out friend on a hospital bed. That does happen. <laughs> that is the basically the opening scene of the movie. Um, poor Asuka is basically comatose in a hospital bed. Shinji is begging for her to wake up because he needs her. He needs her help. She's a pilot like he is, of these Avas. And he pulls her arm and rips her hospital gown off, exposing her breasts. And then we cut to a series of still animated shots of like various objects in the hospital room. And we hear faint moaning, and then suddenly it's a close-up on Shinji's cum-filled hand. And then he calls himself the lowest of the low. And uh, that that's the show in a nutshell. I, I don't know, man. This is... Uh, well, one thing I want to say. So, you know, obviously we're going to get into spoiler talk, blah, blah, blah. For those who have seen the show, everyone knows the, the final two episodes in particular are famous or infamous, however you fall. But we watched the last five episodes... Uh, for this stretch. And I do want to make sure that I just say, even if we focus more on the very end of the last couple episodes of the movie, 
the the handful of episodes leading up to the final two are some of the best television I've ever seen. Yeah, just they're, full blast. I mean, it is it is so good. I mean, for me personally, for what I'm into, it is so fantastic. I loved how weird and introspective the show got. How uh, how esoteric and how surreal and how questioning the show became about just the nature of uh, being a flawed person. I really, really loved it. And I loved how each main pilot, the three kids, basically each had their own turn in the spotlight and really got a lot focused on them. But not only those kids, we got uh, um, Misato got a long stretch to really delve into her psyche. Uh, Dr. Akuga, I believe her name is, um, the female scientist, got a long stretch. Uh, Even Shinji's dad, and especially his number two, got a huge stretch uh, in an episode that was basically an info dump. We got to learn a lot about him. Yeah. The show, by the end of the show, I really felt like I had spent so much time with so many characters and knew them better in what amounted to basically one long, one series of like a primetime network show. Uh, I feel like I knew several characters, almost, uh, you know, a dozen characters maybe, as well as I knew uh, almost any characters of any TV show I've ever seen. And that was really, really rewarding to watch. Um, and the, those those couple episodes leading up to the final two are also very abstract and very weird and probably very polarizing. But I thought they were truly, truly fantastic episodes of television. So I wanted to make sure that I, I got that in Yeah, there. yeah. They're, uh, I, I, they do start to lean into the abstraction that's going to eventually kind of take over the show. But it's not as... I. I as pronounced, I should say. I guess it's it's still pretty. Yeah, not 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 quite as pronounced as say like in particular, even though maybe the final fifteen minutes of the show. Or something. Yeah, yeah. That's at, at that point in the show, it's just gone over an edge that I didn't know animation had gone over before. Yes, that uh, you know, especially when you come to know if if people don't how popular the show was, which I know you you made sure to point out in previous episodes of the pod how. You know, this is one of the most successful animes in uh, Japan's history. Yeah. Which is awesome. I, th- I think that's awesome because I, it's it's beloved. It's not like it was super popular as this mecha anime that was maybe a little smarter than your average show. And then he pulled the rug under, which is kind of what happened to, you know, an analog to this show, which I know a lot of people have brought up. We've even brought up. Lynchian has become a term in film and television language, but Twin Peaks is obviously a very apropos comparison to the show. And the difference seems to be um, both shows, Twin Peaks did a similar thing where it worked itself into a, a tried and true television genre, the idea of a murder mystery in a small town, hooked its audience in, became very popular very fast. And then revealed the mystery and then kind of pulled the rug out and got super weird and the audience abandoned the show. Yeah. But the the opposite happened here, it seems. It it got very popular working within its genre comfortably, being an above average uh, type of that show. And then as it got more abstract and weird, its reputation just seemed to continue to grow and its audience seemed to continue to expand to the point where 
you know, we have that uh, movie that came out that we watched, which uh, maybe works as a continuation of the show and a true series finale, maybe works as an alternate series finale, depending on your perspective. But also there's another movie that came out, which is kind of a glorified clip show. And then there are three other movies that came out in the uh, late aughts, which are, as far as we've come to understand, kind of like a reboot, reimagining, reworking of the show and those are all super popular as well so it's really cool that the show was able to go as far and as weird and as singular in its vision as it did and not only keep its audience but uh have an audience that continues to grow to people like you and i who don't really watch any anime yeah and now we've spent a month straight talking about well it. all right so i i i am a little i have not a hundred percent from what i understand the 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 finale of the show premiered on March 27th 1996 and for, from what i understand and then in July of 97 is when the movie comes out so there's a a little like a year and a half or so a little over a year of wait between the end of the show and the theatrical release of end of evangelion and from what i understand this is or, or, i'm a little confused it seems as if the end of the show was met with extreme derision and a lot of hatred and a lot of misunderstanding but i don't necessarily believe the end of evangelion this is kind of the part where i've seen mixed reports where it doesn't seem that necessarily the movie was a reaction to that poor reception as much as it was already planned slash built off of that reaction so it seemed to be uh, there's two different endings depending on the fandom there's some fandoms that prefer the ending of the show there's some that prefer the ending of the movie and they're two very different finales in a way that kind of depending on how you read them will leave you with different feelings about what you've ultimately seen so i i I definitely wanted to spend some time talking about the end of the finale versus the end of the movie and what that meant and i guess the only way to really start doing that is to sort of basically I'll tell you what I think happened, essentially. Okay, but, but before you do that, yeah. I will concede the floor in a second, but I just want to chime in with what I have come to learn uh, from my research and reading various things about the show, sure. um, just based off to go off what you just said. So uh, we talked about this, I think, last week or maybe the episode before. Uh, the studio financing the show started to uh, constantly uh, fall behind schedule and uh, episodes were coming in over budget. So the last sev- the last dozen episodes or so, uh, the budget is in tighter constraints and they had less time to uh, edit and work on each episode. And that's why you see a lot more static shots. Um, and so a lot of those restrictions in part is what led to the, uh, the very surreal changes and experimentation in the form that we get to see. It's almost a result of those constraints kind of opened up these new avenues for Anna, the creator. But um, as far as the ending, what I do know is this, this seems to be confirmed because I was able to read it from multiple sources, including one that I didn't read the primary source, but they quote the primary source, which is from the creator directly. The episode, so the movie, for those who have seen it, End of Evangelion is basically 90 minutes. It's basically two 45-minute episodes to the point where there's even an end credit sequence halfway through the movie. And there's a title card of an episode 25 and then later an episode 26. Which would have now the show baffled me in theaters. Also goes uh, just to episode 26. So it's not two additional episodes in terms of 
the number sequencing, right? It's a it's another episode twenty five and another episode twenty six. Right. Yeah. So what I've come to understand is the episode twenty five we get in the movie, the first half of the movie, that first forty five minute chunk, was his original ending for the show. Those forty five minutes were supposed to be pretty much. I mean, I'm sure not uh, sell for sell, but pretty much were supposed to be the episode in twenty five and twenty six originally. That's how the show was going to end. That first half of the movie is how the show would end. Because of the budget and timing constraints, uh, Gainax, Gainax, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on the production company. Um, They basically went to him and said, we can't finance this. You're not going to have the time or the money. You're not going to have the resources to end it this way. And he found that out around like episode 16, 18. uh, Basically when Ray has that first surreal sequence of like, what am I, who am I? That change, that started um, when Otto, the creator, started to rework the ending for the show because he realized I'm not going to be able to do what I want to do. So while he definitely got, you know, apparently he got death threats, which you even see if you pause it at the exact right moment at the ending of the movie, uh, when there are these large flashes of, one frame images going over and over again a lot of those (laughs) images snuck in there are actually uh some of the the death threats and stuff that he got between the end of the show and the filming of the movie so it is somewhat a reaction but a lot of the movie is um just his original vision as well so he actually he got to have his cake and eat it too which is really cool yeah all right so i'm gonna try really broadly at least to explain my interpretation of what i think or what i understood to happen and then okay we can we can <laughs> let me grab my popcorn all right can't wait do you have actual popcorn you're grabbing no dude that was i'm just really excited i was waiting i was like waiting to hear some some chewing oh, man. i don't i was please please leave please leave that pause yeah, I, was, that I was like wait oh, do you have popcorn all right um okay all right i'm I'm, I'm eating all right so my fire away i can't wait my main takeaway and this is focusing probably more on the final two stretches or the final two episodes plus the stretch through the finale of the movie so this is this is what that is mainly focusing on so okay so so to set up then in terms of the tv show uh shinjo has just killed the boy angel right shinji yeah that's the end that's shinji sorry has just killed the boy angel uh, who is the final angel as far as everyone knows. That's how episode 24 ends. Yeah. The boy who says he loves him and he's an angel sent there to maybe end humanity and start the third impact and decides because of his affection for Shinji, he's going to let humans live and tells Shinji to kill him. After a long struggle and debate, Shinji decides to. So that's the end of 24. Now we're at the final two episodes. Yeah, yeah. I, so, I yield my All time. right, so I think... What you should basic what you basically need to understand is that one of the focuses of the show is the human instrumentality project, which is a program that I think the ultimate goal is revealed that is designed to morph all of humanity's consciousness into a single shared consciousness. And the the father of Shinji, who has been kind of running the show, he basically wants humanity to end and uh, reset it into a new form because humans suck. And for me, the finale of the TV show 
leading into the film largely resolve, revolves around the main character's points of view as they go through the instrumentality process. So the process of becoming part of a shared consciousness, a part of sharing your consciousness with others. And it becomes very subjective about Shinji's perspective as he goes through this whole, you know, whirlwind of emotions and whirlwind of psychology and visions and such. And that's where you kind of have this incredible breakdown of animation styles. And basically, I think you have to assume that the end of the world is happening. If you didn't know there was a movie coming, let, let's just say you're watching the show. I think what you have to assume is that the end of the world is happening and that these episodes somehow represent the emotional journey of Shinji and the others on their way to a new form. So it doesn't actually show the apocalypse or anything that's actually happening in the world around them, but it's a subjective journey into the subconsciousness and melding of different personalities into one. And from what I understood, the movie works as an extension of that. So where you see the events unfold and the aftermath and ultimately after that stuff, the movie kind of focuses on the actual apocalypse and the aftermath of that apocalypse outside of just the subjective journey that Shinji has to go through throughout that entire last episode. So just ending before we even get into the movie, the show kind of goes just through this crazy mix of animation styles of, Shinji trying to understand his relationship to himself, his anger, his relationship to the women in his life, sexuality. Um, as I mentioned, these Freudian ideas of like mother and father and who represents whom. And the movie, or the, I should say the show, ends on this note of, it reminded me a lot of Twin Peaks, that idea of he's being shown different realities that could have been presented to him. We see this very happy version of life that was very creepy and you kind of get a sense of, if he wouldn't be so self-loathing, if he would have just opened himself to others, if he could be more understanding, maybe his friends would react differently. Maybe they would have a different existence. And he is being shown these things. And I think the end of the show is him having this positive, kind of a, a, a sort of very positive coming to Jesus, whatever you want to call it, moment of like, oh yeah, I do need everybody. I do need people. This is I, I do want to be a part of everyone and I don't want to be alone. And I think that's sort of where the show ends. And I, I'm curious if that was at least your reading before even we get into the movie of it all. Yeah, so I agree uh, with a lot of what you said. Um, I think we maybe diverge in a few instances. But um, yeah, kind of the my rough reading of the, the end of the show. Here's my one question, actually, before I get into that. So you said... Uh, you know, we don't see the apocalypse. We don't see the end of the world. But before Shinji is shown these potential alternate realities. Yeah. We do see the dead bodies of Misato and the doctor. Well, I, so, I we meant see, the action of it. Yeah, it's not like an action ending. Yeah, yeah. but, but the, here's my question then. Is that supposed to just be an alternate reality as well? Or did they die? I think? assume they all die, and then the movie is about life being remade in a way, or beginning again. So when he's being shown this this alternate reality of uh, humanity coming together as one consciousness, because they're a part of that those those dead those dead characters in the show. Yeah, like the character, like yeah, like the school bully and him are getting along. They're laughing at the teacher. Every like he's having a joke. But I mean, not not even in the alternate reality that we see, but like the very end of the show, when he decides to keep on living 
and to try to continue and be a part of this a collective subconscious. Yeah, I, re- I remember right? that shot of him standing and he's kind of like surrounded by the people he loves. And they're all they're all clapping and saying congratulations over and over. Yeah, yeah. But that in- that includes like Misato and the Doctor and stuff like that, who are. So it now seems like the 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 goal of the Human Instrumentality Project was a success, and now humanity is now this one shared consciousness, and they don't really have corporeal forms anymore. But does that mean the people who died can now be part of it too? If it's just your soul, your heart, right? Like if they died, if their bodies died earlier before he makes this decision, yeah, are they still part of it, or were those dead bodies uh, another? possible version of reality that we're just seeing out of sequence i'm asking i I don't i don't know that i know for sure i think the way i read it was that it was more about shinji because the show what's i'm blanking on the kid's name but the male who became an angel in the previous episode he said like shinji you have no idea how important you are and how important the decisions you make are going to be so I did have that sense of, if not chosen one kind of lore, there was a sense of like Shinji is the main character. And I, yeah, I read it completely as an internal journey. Uh, oh, for sure. For yeah, sure. yeah. So it's about him like confronting his own. And we'll get we'll get some clarity on that idea of uh, Shinji's importance to the to that plan. I think it, there's more clarity to that in the movie. Yeah. Than we and, get in and, the show yeah, well. but the movie kind of, as he delves deeper into his, his subconscious and his relationships with these other people, that's when you start to see like flashing imagery, like real life stock footage, the, the images of children's drawings that were apparently drawn by real life children of abuse. You have these like black and white sketches, there's pencil sketches, you name it. Like everything's there, I think, except CGI, which was brand new at the time. So it's not really available, but like every other style of animation is there. And the journey is this internal one, which I guess I could see why that would be disappointing to fans who wanted more explanation of the whole world or um, who saw it as kind of a fuck you as this, like, you know, if you start watching a show, like whatever it is, Twin Peaks or whatever, and you're like, hey, this is this detective mystery or something. And then suddenly the show transforms into something else. I can see being disappointed. But yeah, like for me, when I see something like this, where you're like, I don't even know what to make of this. This is so internal and so psychologically driven and so visually driven and abstract that it's hard to kind of make your way through it in a logical way. Or it, it, I think it is just an emotional reaction in some sense. And yeah, we can. I think we can debate a little bit what exactly happens, but I think the show ends generally on a positive note. Is that? Am I wrong about reading it that way? I think the yeah, the show is definitely positive. Um, Overall, especially compared to yeah, the movie, the movie felt so like my, the darker. My, my question, yeah, about, that was just, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's, the movie's very dark. Um, no, I, I just had that. I just had that statement in terms of we get more clarification, literally in terms of the plot and like Gendo Shinji's father and yeah. why uh, why Shinji plays such. An you get an role. you but get anyway. an actual like character end for some of these major characters who in the series are kind of dropped off in favor of Shinji's internal experience whereas i guess right. i could see fans being like hey there's like 10 characters you didn't give me their ending for where the movie does yeah does kind of give you that ending and then it kind of goes like to an even bigger mind fuck somehow so yeah so here's my interpretation of the ending of the show so we you know we've talked about how especially the back half of the show a lot of it you bring it you brought it up in your intro tonight a lot of it is uh 
Hideaki Anno, if that's how you pronounce his name, if it's not, I apologize, dealing with his own personal uh, battles with depression. And in particular, he he was dealing with a major depressive episode uh, right before the show began. And um, I, I one of the things I read was that the central, one of the central questions that um, he was trying to figure out using art as therapy. Uh, I've, I've been reading that a lot in a lot of my research into the show is the show was um, art as therapy for the creator to deal with his depression and also several uh, large scale, possibly unanswerable questions. But one of them is, is it okay to run away from your problems, right? So like we talked about it in the beginning when the show is still pretty standard, but good, but standard, uh, how um, Shinji, even though he's, you know, like you said, maybe the chosen one uh, or the, the call to action comes in a uh, standard story parlance and he doesn't answer it. He runs away. There's an entire episode early on when uh, the show first starts to maybe get a little playful with uh, its storytelling structure where uh, the entire show is him just uh, literally like physically getting as far away from Nerve headquarters as possible before deciding to come back and try to save the world. So there's this whole struggle Shinji's been going through about like, why do I have to be the hero? I don't want this. I don't want this. Everybody leave me alone. I'm so sad. I'm so lonely, but please love me. Please give me attention. So like Shinji's clearly a depressed character. All three of the pilots in their own way are dealing with very traumatic childhoods. They're dealing with some psychological uh, issues in some way or another. Uh, Shinji's in particular is depression. And the way I read the ending uh, as someone who has depression and is medicated for depression is um, literally trying to answer the age-old question of if you are constantly depressed and if you are battling that demon day in and day out, what can you hang on to to make life worth living? Like that to me seems to be the central question of the show and particularly the finale. So we see Shinji go on this inward journey and almost to the point where, not almost, literally to the point where the show breaks the fourth wall and the screen itself um, just starts to question characters. Like there's there's an omniscient narrator who we can't see or or hear, but we just read in text, uh, starts to ask, different characters these questions and they start to badger the characters over and over with the same question trying to like crack through some kernel of truth and shinji gets the brunt of it and a lot of it are questions like why do you pilot the eva why do you do this why you know this is what you're supposed to do and he at his first answer is like it's because i'm it's what i've been told to do you know he asks asuka and it's it's because that's what i'm good at and then you realize like why is it important you to pilot just because you're good at it and it's because well i have nothing else i had to force myself to be an adult at a young age because my mom killed herself and tried to kill me and my dad was sleeping with my mom's nurse and if i didn't become an adult who could take care of herself and her own shit then that needed i needed a mom who tried to murder me and isn't here anymore you know so it's like the show is really trying to break down walls of all these characters and get into their psyche so shinji's psyche it's are you able to find purpose in this? Is it enough for you to be a hero 
for other people when you don't want other people around, even though you do, but you can't admit it. And the end of the show is him deciding, do you want to just end the world? Do you want to stop and live in a non-existence where you think you'll be happy? And that's kind of what you say because you keep running away. Or are you willing to try to work with people and is doing that for people enough? Yeah. To just keep going like another day. Is that enough? Let's not like, let's put aside the potential third impact, the apocalypse of the world. Let's just put that aside, Shinji. And let's just answer the question, can you keep going another day for the sake of others? And he eventually decides yes, which I think is a very optimistic, hopeful ending for someone with uh, depression like the character has, like the creator has. And that's why he literally gets congratulated and the show ends. And I, what I love about it is how meta it gets too. You, you know, we see the different realities you mentioned the one reality where now him and asuka are childhood friends and ray is no longer uh an artificial creation that has lived through three versions of existence she's also just another schoolgirl, and uh shinji's parents are together and they're happy and what you're seeing is basically the bad version of what this show could have been you're seeing the standard shitty version yeah. of neon genesis right and then in another another alternate reality He's in a plane of nothingness. He's like a sketch uh, just drawn in a void, in a white void. And the omniscient narrator is basically saying, you're free to do whatever you want now. You're going to be completely alone. You're going to live in a non-existence because you're not willing to share your heart and soul with the rest of humanity. But you're the one who gets to decide. This is the point of your dad's job. This is his ultimate goal. You are the decider. This is why you've been so important. So you can have this reality. You're just going to live. You're just going to float in a white void and you can do whatever you want. And he freaks out and he says, I need some structure. And then the the narrator paints a line on the horizon and says, okay, now you can stand on the ground. Now you have up and down. But that means your options are limited now. And now you can't, you don't have quite as much freedom as you had. But I can continue in this fashion or not, but you're going to be completely alone. You get to choose whatever you want. And he freaks out from that. So he has to work through all of these different questions and answers. And it's really the most like introspective and hard-hitting in a very weird way, a very unique way, that a, char- a character has ever like, had to reckon with from his own show. You know? It's, yeah. it's totally bizarre. And but totally fascinating, and like you said, I can get why maybe some people are dissatisfied with the ending. Although I always get kind of bummed out by people who uh, rebel against something so unique and, and cool like this, because while maybe we didn't see the impact of the third impact, or like we didn't see the apocalypse happen, we pretty much answered every every hanging thread in the show. Like what really was the second impact? How did all these characters get to be where they are? What is Asuka's Asuka's tragic backstory that she hints at? What about Misato's backstory? What about Dr. Akuga's backstory? Like, what happened to Shinji's mom? Oh, she ended up basically melding herself with the Ava unit. That's how she died mysteriously. Like, all these questions we get answered. Yeah, you know? I, I think... So, in, ter- well, yeah. was... in terms of, like, all these questions, they he doesn't just leave them dangling, you know? So, in terms of that, in terms of a plot... 
those plot elements, I, I thought it was satisfying and it didn't bother me that it went this weird way. Yeah, I think both of us as people who generally like abstraction probably left the finale being like, well, yeah, we're good. Like we can infer the rest and that's okay with us. And I, I, can, under, I can understand why that's not okay with some other people. But it's interesting that you tell me that um, I didn't know that the first 45-ish minutes or so of the movie were the original ending because for me of the movie, like, like, like as I was saying, I left the series kind of feeling, well, yeah, he okay, he achieved an internal kind of peace. That's the journey of the show. That's a good ending as any. Like, I'm good. I don't know that I need more. And I understand there's some plot threads that maybe you could pick up, but I was a little suspicious of like, well, what is there to do? And... I think watching the show, it's actually quite darker because the show ends with him accepting a kind of peace and find watching. Sorry, watch. You said watching the show is quite darker, but you mean watching watching. Yeah, right? watching the movie. Yeah, because okay. watching watching yeah. the show versus that uh, the ending at least the end of the show is quite in a way peaceful, or at least he finds some peace. And I think the movie, for my reading of it, is is a bit darker and a little bit more complex because at least. I guess just to summarize what happens in the movie very, very, very broadly, because... And I I will say before you say that, um, although that is what I've read, I can't say for sure that it, you know, that it's verbatim, those 45, like maybe the the final 10 minutes of this show was always planned, but instead of how they get to that point, maybe it was more the script from the movie, you know, so maybe it was like a combination. Yeah, yeah. And and I think, well, I was going to say when I was watching the movie, my first thought, at least through the first 45 minutes was... I don't know that I need this. This feels in some ways repetitive or Shinji's going through an emotional journey that I just saw him go through. So I did kind of feel through the first 45 minutes of the movie that it was a little bit repetitive in terms of the emotional journey of this character. But I think by the end I was won over, especially because uh, just to kind of go into what I think happened. So in the end, um, after finding out all this crazy stuff about the angels and relationships of that angels were in different versions of humans and that they were a different, that everyone is trying to get back to Adam is essentially what you're told. Um, the original angel who is kind of underground, the one hanging on the cross. So you're told that. And then the end is this spatial battle between a giant Ray who is mel- melted with Adam and it becomes this almost Salvador Dali come to life space god imagery shit and shinji realizing once again that he needs humanity even if it even if his instinct is to reject them he i think that's kind of the important thing is shinji realizing that he both needs humanity and what is the acceptance of that humanity at the end of the show but that he even after he accepts it will continue to reject it which is i think something that we as humans do a lot in terms of we want to accept love we want to be given it but as soon as we are we are kind of suspicious of it or rejecting of it. And I think that's the cycle that Shinji slash the creators of the show are kind of trying to explore. At least that was my takeaway from it. And as Shinji realizes once again, that he needs humanity, even if his instincts is to reject them. And the end of this film is this incredibly powerful and dark scene where he materializes, he rematerializes, I should say with Asuka on a beach. And after he and the other characters have had this melding of personalities and kind of come to an understanding and uh, uh, a melding of one singular consciousness. Um, They find themselves, he decides, you know what? It would be worth it for me to be a human and experience pain than just to live in this 
kind of nothingness of pleasure. And he decides that it is worth the balance of pain and pleasure to be a human. And those contradictions are worth living for. So at the end, after he rejects this kind of godly transformation into a single consciousness, that is the um, project that his father has been working on, the um, human instrumentality project. After that's become a thing, he rejects that and rehumanizes himself on a beach and he's there with uh asuka and the first thing he does is he fucking strangles her and he's uh it's it's horrible and it's upsetting but then in the very last beats of the movie she reaches up and he stops and teardrops beat on her and for me that realization was no matter what it's a lesson he's gonna have to keep learning over and over again it's this rejection of love contrasted with this need for love and you need people even if sometimes you want to strangle them in a way. And to me, that was the end of the show was this ultimate compromise of like, you can find happiness and self uh, understanding and joy and rediscovery of yourself. And whereas the movies ending is much more like you're going to find love, but you're also going to reject it ultimately. And you're always going to have some, have that relationship of conflicting against it. So that was sort of where I ended up. The end of the movie was this, internal struggle of I need love, but I don't want your love or whatever it was. I don't know if that, that was sort of my reading of the movie ultimately outside of the crazy visuals and abstraction and actual plot machinations. That was sort of what I took away from it. Yeah. I, um, I like that reading a lot. I think, uh, you know, obviously the, the most memorable parts, whether it's your favorite or not of the movie is the last act. I think for sure um, we get some truly, in, especially considering the show we've just watched, we get some imagery that is on par with, you know, the like the great surrealist animation images we've ever seen in in movies before. Yeah, like I said, it's like a, a Salvador Dali painting come to life in many respects. Yeah, and it's it's like, you know, Fantastic Planet type stuff, and like there's a lot of. Uh, you see a lot of maybe influence that it's pulling from and also stuff it is influenced in uh, later works that have come out after Neon. Like I, a lot of the imagery at the end, um, I felt its influence in the, the newest Blade Runner movie. It just, a lot sure. of the imagery yeah. just reminded me of the, the 2049 we see in um, the 2017 Blade Runner. Um, yeah, I think so. I definitely think uh, the movie is uh, much darker than the ending of the TV show. Uh, like what I was saying earlier, I think it, that idea of uh, it's ultimately Shinji's choice to decide the fate of his father's project um, becomes much more clear. Like we actually get to hear his father say it and we kind of start to understand his father's reasoning, which is you know, I'm, I'm doing this to reunite with my wife who, um, basically gave her life either knowingly or unknowingly or how intentionally it was. We still don't really know, but to this, this Ava, uh, which Shinji has been piloted this whole time. And one of the things I like about the idea that only the kids can pilot them and how only these like teenagers can sync with these Ava machines. And it's always these troubled teens who are dealing with some trauma. There, there's so much, womb like imagery inside the avas like the way they're actually situated yeah there's so much like being within 
another person or the psychology of existing within somebody else versus controlling them yeah, like and he, fathers and mothers. He's obviously, and yeah, like obviously this is a very psychologically dense show and um, there's a lot of Freudian and Jungian psychology, like you were talking about Oedipal complexes galore. Um, and you, you end up finding out, you know, as comfortable as these kids find themselves inside their avas, they come to be like a safe space for them. And you basically come to find out that Shinji, every time he's piloting his Ava, the Ava one, it's, he's basically back inside his mom, like quite literally, uh, which is a crazy reveal, a a very cool reveal. Um, I, so my interpretation of the ending is pretty similar to yours where he, Ray, who we know to be this, uh, this non-human who is, the show, um, maybe we did disservice by not talking about Ray too much in the in the show because I think she she may be my favorite character in the entire series. Uh, we come to find out that her journey in the back half of the show is basically actualization. You know, like the the genesis of the show, kind of really switching gears and getting much more abstract and uh, introspective is is with Ray and that whole like who am I, what am I montage thing she goes through. And, you know, we come to find out pretty early towards the back half of the show that she's not human. And um, it, it seems to be for her a journey of struggling to find out, like, is she a person? Does she have a soul? Does she does she deserve to live? Like, does she deserve to have autonomy? And the decision she comes to in the show is basically, I'm a human being because other people perceive me as such. Like, observance is existence for her. Like, Shinji, Shinji cares about me. And that's enough to make me a human being who deserves to live, who deserves to have a life. And to me, that's a very, that's a very powerful realization and a really powerful idea in a character, especially in a young character. Because to me, that's like, uh, maybe I'm reaching here, but I don't know. I've thought a lot about this um, in the the past couple of weeks and what we're seeing with these protests and the idea of these groups of people who are, who have always been marginalized and there seems to be a real reckoning taking place of these, these people need to be seen and we haven't listened to their, their cries for help. Right. Like, you know, there's that MLK quote that you mentioned last week, a riot is the language of the unheard. And I think there's a lot of that going on with Ray. Um, a lot of people throughout the entire show ignore her and just think she's creepy and don't want to engage with her because she's so quiet and she's so passive and she's so, I mean, robotic, basically. Um, but she's dealing with this really epic internal struggle. So I really like that in the movie, the final act is her being the impetus for gendo's instrumentality project basically like you said she melds with adam and becomes this godlike figure and is basically the like the the messenger the carrier like she's like noah's ship yeah it's and it's because she was made with the dna of so and and make them uh one collective thing like she comes up to every it's a crazy sequence in the movie where we see her go to you know every side character we've been following throughout the whole show in the movie and the last thing they see before they they die basically is like some something that they're they love you know like there's one employee at nerve who is clearly in love with masato 
And right before she collects his soul and his spirit and his heart, she transforms into Masato and gives him a big kiss and then his head explodes. Um, and we see that over and over again with all these characters we've been following. And we end up seeing it with Shinji's dad and he's talking to his his dead wife and saying, you know, I was so hard on Shinji because if I got close to him, it would basically corrupt this. Well, it was almost like all of them got their dream ending except for him who was like, she was, that was the only person who I saw as being judged by the kind of ghost or whatever it is you want to call it that wants to visit them. It's like the rest of everyone got this happy ending like, oh, this girl you've always wanted to kiss you is going to kiss you. But he is met with a mother who is like, you were a terrible father. And he has to kind of repent for that in his very last moments. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Especially because, like, you realize, you know, why he cares so much about Ray. Like, before she goes on this inner journey, the only thing that's really keeping her going is that she feels loved by Gendo. And Gendo almost becomes, Ray almost becomes like the surrogate child for Gendo, which is a, a big problem for Shinji throughout most of the show. Like, I'm your actual son. Why do you not give a shit about me, but you care about this, like, lifeless girl who doesn't really seem to show any emotion or care about anything, right? Um, and you realize it's because, like, he's basically, he's made this this girl in his wife's image with the ultimate goal of using her to get back with his wife. So it's like this, it's fucking, like, Shakespearean <laughs> it's in its machinations it's it's just absolutely crazy but so she, uh yeah ray becomes this godlike figure figure and it, the question comes back to shinji like you said I, I won't repeat basically what you said except the very end um when he's back on the beach you know there's this conversation i think it's maybe misato's voice we hear but i forget now but there's this idea of like with the human instrumentality project the ultimate goal is like humans had their chance and they keep fucking up it's obviously not working the way it's supposed to work but maybe if we can all become this one this one giant consciousness uh that's just based in love and understanding in our souls we can live forever and even if we perish from this earth even if the apocalypse comes and wipes us all out which we we already see happen in the first half like there's a brutal sequence of violence where the government has basically taken over and their goal now is to wipe out any acknowledgement that nerve ever existed and there's this like horrible sequence where we just see all these employees just getting like murked like gunned down there's one crazy moment do you remember the one i'm talking about where like an employee's crying and trying to drag a dead body away to safety and a group of soldiers run by and one stops sees, in the hallway and just like shoots stops yeah. and like out of the corner of his eyes like oh boop knocks you out too and it's just like a trail of dead bodies but yeah there's this idea of like even if we don't survive on earth we can leave some testament to that we survived and that testament basically becomes shinji choosing to stay in his human form and like you said he his first reaction is to choke out asuka uh and then she touches him tenderly which was a running theme throughout the show like he would always recoil from people's touch um which for the show and for him was this that was the whole idea of his inability to get close and to like to engage in in intimacy because of his fucked up childhood and his upbringing yeah so and being and being abandoned so but to me that ending even though the whole the whole ending is pretty dark 
that ending is super dark and it's very touching, but I also find it kind of funny because the very last thing you hear after this crazy journey is just Asuka going right back again to calling him an idiot or like a moron, like, you dummy, like just basically calling him out for like, you try to kill me, you'll never learn. Yeah. Which is, is really bizarre and a super, uh, super weird and probably a depressing ending, but in its own way, um, that's how the movie starts. We see Asuka in that hospital bed when he ends up jerking off in that weird scene. But he's begging her to wake up and saying, like, call me an idiot again. I don't care. Because that that has become, for better or worse, the way those characters communicate. have. Yeah, that's how they communicate. and They interact with each other. And so in, a, in its weird way, even though he was just strangling her and even though he breaks down crying because she finally touched him and he didn't recoil from it. She says that line, which is kind of like a comedic moment, but in its own way, it's it's like the the movie's way of saying like, yeah, this is this is who they are, and that's okay, you know. Yeah. So, walking away from the movie, I like I said, I think in the first forty five minutes, I had that concern of, is this repeating what was just happening in the? Well, I guess it was a mixture because there was a lot of action in the first forty five minutes ish, and I feel yes. like there was that part of me that was like. Is this just the action finale that people were mad that they didn't get from the from yep. the show? And I think I kind of had my guard up a little bit through that section, as well as kind of feeling like the emotional beats that Asuka was going through, uh, not Asuka, sorry, Shinji was going through, was kind of repetitive of what he'd already been through in the finale. So I was a little concerned at first, I think, of what is this show have anything new or does this movie have anything new to say versus what the show already said? And I think ultimately, like you said, the end is very dark. It's different. It compared it, it. Supposing where you want to end the show or the story, I think they're both valid endings for different reasons. And they both are interesting mirrors of each other in very interesting reasons. But I did walk away from the movie and I'm curious what you think about this generally with the show and that it did dive into a lot, but I, I kept thinking of the, um, the forgetting Sarah Marshall scene where she's comparing or she's looking at all of his tattoos and she's saying like, you know, this is a Buddhist one. This is a Christian one. This is a Judas Judaism one. Like just, you are not a student of the world. This is all mixed together. These are contradictory ideologies that you are mixing together. And this is bullshit. And I did have that like question, I guess halfway through of wondering like, this is throwing a lot at me and I might be too stupid to understand if it's bullshit or not. You know, like, I don't know if you had that sense of like, this could all be gobbledygook and I, and I'm not smart enough to know, but I know that I'm liking it. So I just have that kind of sense of like, it's throwing so much at you that I can, I right. can understand that. Like it's so many, like the, the, they are literally talking about these psychological ideas that we're kind of going into. It's not, it's both not subtle and very subtle at the same time, if that makes sense. And I was curious how your reading of it in terms of like, yeah, this is incredible that an anime show or something ostensibly geared towards teenagers developed into this crazy deep dive into psychoanalytics. I'm curious if you had any hesitations about like, well, is this just uh, the most basic one-on-one psychoanalytical kind of, you know, baseline thing, or if you were just like totally in for it, I'm curious if you had any moments of hesitation or doubt. Cause you know, well, like, like I said, I very much enjoyed the movie, but I think I kind of had, um, a suspicion throughout of kind of like, 
what's the point of view? Are you adding anything to the show? And, and it's all kind of in contrast with, I think, what I heard the reaction to the finale was. So I was curious for, for myself, yeah. so is this I, movie a reaction to that fandom or is this a legitimate statement from the artist? And ultimately, I think it is an, a statement from the artist, but I'm also curious in the ways that it, you know, changed the show that it, it did start out as becoming. And I'm curious what you think of it as just a piece of film, like on its own. Yeah, I, I didn't have that. Con- I know what you're saying. I didn't have that concern um, because to me, this show and the 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 person behind it, the creator of it, I I felt nothing but like complete. And you know, you mentioned that it's very heady, but also very blunt at the same time. Like a lot of times, it's very obvious. Um, and that's why it worked so well for me because even if I wasn't picking up on every moment. And even if I didn't understand every nuance of the story or whatever, I never doubted the genuine intentions of its creator. I like, you know, like I mentioned earlier, um, there's a lot of talk and a lot of the the readings about the show is that it was art as therapy for this guy. And it was really him trying to work out his own feelings. And I think if you're willing to really do that in a very raw, real, genuine way, you're probably going to contradict yourself at some point. Um, you're probably going to step over something you laid down early. Yeah, I think I was going to say the, the, the it's it's, it's going to get messy like that, you know. And that's why I don't. I never got the sense that this was a guy trying to uh, teach me something or like lay down a psychology lesson. It never felt like that. It felt purely from from the emotional side of things and from really like I'm trying to figure this out too. And that's why I never, I never questioned any of that, I guess. Yeah, I guess I just, there was a part of me that was like listening to all the psychoanalytical Freudian Oedipal kind of mumbo jumbo being, you know, espoused throughout mixed with the, you know, Catholic mixed with Judaism mixed with Buddhist like imagery and wondering like, I know this is all impressive because they're like, you know, aiming big, but does this make any actual sense to me? I don't know. And so... Well, just because they're different ideologies doesn't always mean they're they're at odds with each other. I mean, for example, I was just reading this fantasy series, um, and in the in the third and final book of the trilogy, the a guy who wasn't a main character, who was a major side character, almost becomes the main character because his job in this world, this fantasy world, is he's the keeper of all the religions of the world, and you know, ninety nine percent of them are extinct, and his his role is to remember all of them and preach all of them. And he has a crisis of faith where he feels like he can no longer teach them because he doesn't believe himself. The love of his life has just died, blah, blah, blah. But by the end of the of the trilogy, he realizes none of these are absolute truths, but all like most of them contain kernels of truth. A lot of them come from the same source or a lot of them uh, branch off of the same tree, you know, where the, the same roots that were built branch off all of these different subsects. So I think like you can have these contradicting schools of thought and belief systems all within the same work. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you're contradicting yourself. You know, Uh, if I, like I said, if I think if you're working at it from this angle of artist therapy and trying to figure it out yourself, which is how I, just me personally, that's how I took it. Yeah, I, and I guess I'm only trying, like I said, it worked for me. I really liked the show. I, I'm just trying to reconcile yeah. the 
intellectual like piecing together of what they're actually saying versus the emotional experience of just having watched it and yeah what you just said actually i know this sounds very corny but it reminded me of a bright eyes lyric which is uh the Bible's blind, the Torah's deaf, the Quran is mute. If you burn them all together, you'll get close to the truth. And I, I, I don't know. I sort of think that's what the show is in a way. It's like, I'm going to take all these psychological ideas, these religious ideas, these scientific ideas, these genre ideas, and kind of throw them all into this mix, and see, uh, hopefully you like it. And I, I think for both of us, we clearly liked it. We were like, yeah, mix all this shit together. Give us Twin Peaks mixed with Pacific Rim. You know, it, it worked for us. Absolutely. It works so well. All right. Is there anything you want to talk? Is there any other thing? I mean, we there's a, both a billion things and nothing else left to talk about it in a way. Yeah, no, I feel um, I feel pretty comfortable with where we left off. I mean, we're both big fans. Uh, it's obvious to say I would highly, highly. It's on Netflix right now. Who knows with these things, how long it'll stay there. It's not a show that's very easy to find otherwise. Uh, as far as I know, the, the original DVD is out of print. Even the, the reboot movies that came out in the late aughts, um, those are not super easy to find, especially if you want like a physical copy. Like a Blu-ray of the first one on Amazon is like 50 bucks. So while the, while the show and End of Evangelion, the 90s, the first movie that came out after the show, while they're on Netflix, at least in the U.S., watch the show while you can because... It is a completely singular experience. I've never seen anything like it. I'm so glad I finally watched it after being told since I was in high school to watch this show. Um, I absolutely loved it. It's one of my favorite recent discoveries. It's a great start to our classic Blind Spot series. Yeah, and I'll just say as someone who is both open to anime and also skeptical of starting the show, I was kind of just like, okay, Tom, if you really want to do this, let's do this. But... I didn't really have any enthusiasm or much enthusiasm about it, largely because I didn't quite know what I was getting into, so it was kind of abstract. But having been someone who is not that into anime and de delving into this, I found it very rewarding. I'm very happy we did it. And I've been, like I told you, I think before we were recording, I was recommending it to other friends who have actually started it. Um, you know my friend Joey? Joey is now diving into it because as soon as I saw it, Joey is someone who has Salvador Dali paintings all around his home. So I was like, dude, there's a show. And I sent him all these screen grabs. And he's like, I'm watching that now. And he's been diving into it. And he's not someone who's necessarily into anime. But he's sent me a text today saying he's loving it. So I'm, yeah, I'm very glad that uh, you pushed me towards it. I'm very glad that I discovered it. I'm very curious to kind of see where the anime journey leads me from here on out. That warms my heart. I'm so glad you were willing to take the jump and trusted me. I'm so glad you loved it, obviously. I know Joey. I am <laughs> I'm glad that that white boy loves it. <laughs> yeah, he Joey's Joey's a funny dude. Yeah, he um, he's great. And he is he has great taste. I'm not surprised he would dig it. He he's always come across as a guy who um has really good like he knows when something's good when something's special he knows. it's his house that we were at when i had cookies on my belly watching do the right thing it sure was yeah, so it sure was. so he it's one of, he's one of those weird stoner guys who are like hey what are your top five films then he'll tell you his top five films and you're like oh well, that's pretty good actually so yeah yeah he's he's great i'm glad he's loving it and i guess in the interest of fairness since this wasn't really a title we agreed upon for the classic blind spots thing, which I had suggested, 
and you were you were down for the idea. But obviously this was my suggestion because you didn't really know about it and you kind of just decided to trust me with it and especially because it was a it was a series and not just like one movie. Um, if you have an idea for the next uh, entry in this series, whether it's another show, whether it's a movie or whatever, I will I'll defer to you for part two. So think on it and uh, decide what you want to decide. We'll we'll continue on. Cool. Yeah, I will I will think of something. We'll see. I, I think for the next upcoming weeks. Uh, to give viewers a kind of hint, I think we're, like I mentioned, talking about Spike Lee movies. Um, I would love for, uh, more than any show, I would love for you to rewatch or revisit or first time visit some Spike Lee joints. Um, we're going to talk about some Apatow movies in the upcoming weeks. We've got, we've got plenty to tackle. So I'm, I'm the vast, the vast of night and Shirley, the vast of night and Shirley. Yeah. A couple uh, very good independent movies that have come out this year. We've got a lot to talk about, so I'm good for now. You know, when when I think of a blind spot, I think that I'd certainly have my own that I've been in a way. I think my entire like past couple years have been about tackling blind spots or at least tackling filmmakers who I've, always wanted to understand more so that's i've talked in previous shows about tackling directors this week i've been watching cheryl dunye movies and kizo uh kenji mizuguchi movies and yeah so i don't know it's it's i don't know what i'd recommend i don't have anything off the top of the dome this second but i will i'll get you back for this uh for you for six gone with the winds gone with the winds always waiting for us yeah which what's crazy is people are like oh man that's a long movie and i'm like well you know 12 hours plus of a tv series is pretty long as well so <laughs> that's right that's <laughs> so right. one movie versus a tv show plus a movie is different so i'll have to think of something and there is a part of me i must admit that wants to find something that you will instinctively not like at first i want to like <laughs> <laughs> I want, fair, I want, I want enough. to find something where you're just going to be like, oh, that's what you want to cover, you know. <laughs> I mean, you could do a, you could do an episode on Ryan Adams, but I don't want to because he hasn't been good the last couple of years. So I, true. I have to, and that's not, that's not a blind spot for you either. True, yeah, it's not new for me. I got to find something like, I don't even know what it is because I feel like it's not that you're not open to world cinema. It's that you, I think you've been closed lately the last year or two. You. It's not so much that you're closed permanently, but you've not 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 world cinema, uh, indie, some certain types of indie cinema. I would say I'm, I've definitely been closed off to, but not world cinema. I just it hasn't been a focus, but I'm not I, I have not been closed off to that. I wouldn't say that there are definitely certain types of art house movies. I for sure am. But um, if you want to if you want to try to bring about some uh, some world filmmaker that I'm not familiar with, I'm open to it. Sure. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, I mean, even if it's someone who, I, I I think the conflict for me is someone who I've just recently discovered and wanting to rewatch their work versus someone you don't know. I don't know. We'll figure it out later for future episodes. We'll figure. We've it got out. plenty going on. It's not as if there's not enough going on, especially for the month of June. Um, for anyone looking ahead, as we talked about, there's Spike Lee. We're gonna do Judd Apatow. I th- Apatow. I think. The end of the month, we're going to talk about the best of the year so far. So we've got plenty to coming in June to before we even jump into anything extra. But yeah, I'm I'm glad we. I'm very glad. I'm surprised how glad I am that we made time for this anime series, which, like you said, I, I had zero expectations for. I did. It's not that I was anti anime. It was more of a like I just don't know what to expect from that. So, and that kind of not having any expectations ended up helping me enjoy the show even more because I had such low expectations that by the time it was reaching these levels of 
artistry that I had no idea could even grasp for. It was very rewarding. So that said, I not to keep going back to political stuff, but I think that mixed with what we were saying earlier about political stuff, about black culture and everything, like just because you don't understand it or you think it is not for you does not mean it is not incredibly rewarding to dive into. And uh, this, um, however many films we've mentioned over the course of this podcast, you know, it, it's all worth diving into other cultures. That's the beauty of art. And that's kind of what I've overall taken from Run the Jewels, I Am Not Your Negro, Selma, Neon Genesis, all that stuff. Uh, everything from a different culture. It's really hard to it's really hard to continue being a racist if you're a racist. It is very difficult to continue being racist if you open yourselves up to art from all around the world. Whatever it is, whether it's movies, music, authors, whatever, it is very very hard to hold on to your prejudices if you just open yourself up to those different perspectives. That's that's how I view it and that's why this stuff is it matters on top of being entertaining. All right, I agree 100% with that said. Tom, let's wrap it up. Let's do some recommendations. Yeah. Tell me, this week, I know we've had some crazy craziness. There's been a lot of releases. What have, what's, your been, what's been your focus? What is your recommendation for the week? What are you going to tell the people to go seek out? Yeah, musically, so Run the Jewels, RTJ4, obviously, like we said, and Neon, those two things you got to get into. Um, there's a couple things I want to highlight. Um you know, this is a weird one. I So I have a few things. Um, but the first one I'm going to say, uh, which is weird because I've told you in recent uh, weeks as we've recorded this, not even to bother mentoring my Twitter handle because I'm rarely on Twitter anymore. But I'm going to recommend social media today because, I mean, people think what you want about social media. I have plenty of issues with it. Um, but the the just the... The fact of the matter is, if you're not on it on some level right now with everything that's going on and all you're getting from your if if your news source is coming just from cable news and you're not you're not trying to follow and engage with leaders of the protests on the street or black voices, black artists, black activists, allies of Black Lives Matter movement. If you're not on social media following these people and going to these primary sources you're just you're not getting the full story and in today's day we have the ability to hear and see things directly from these primary sources in the struggle that are out there doing the work out on the street um you know media outlets are always gonna filter and angle their coverage that's nothing new um but if you if you focus on the news story i don't know if i told this in a podcast but this has been a a major talking point with a lot of conversations i've had when the protests first broke out I went home and I, I spent four hours watching, flipping between ABC, NBC, and CBS, the local LA news affiliates. And obviously it was breaking news. The protests were everywhere. All three were focused on Fairfax Avenue. There was one fire happening. They spent four hours. They never changed their camera angle, right? They just never focused on anywhere else. So if you're just watching those news stations, all you're going to focus on was the riots in these protests. Now, you talked about it earlier, Phil. The rioting and the looting has has pretty much disappeared from protests around the country. Right, yeah. But you wouldn't think that. You wouldn't think that if you're not following the people that are actually going to the protests and posting about it on social media. Or if you're on social media and you're following all of the instances we're seeing of just senseless, needless police brutality at these protests, which often instigate 
a lot of the riots and the violence at the protests. So even though I have my own issues with social media, even though social media can be a black hole, it can be a suck hole, it can promote awful human qualities, but in times of social change, in times of social revolution, like right now, like the Arab Spring several years ago, um, it's just a vital and absolutely essential tool that people simply need to engage in. Uh, if they want to be informed, if they want to be involved, if they want to be an ally. So social media, weirdly, is one thing I'm going to recommend this week. Um, cool. A couple a couple other things uh, very quickly. Uh, just to keep it politically. All right. Uh, there's a bunch. There's a bunch of stories about Lindsey Graham, uh, L- Lady G, hiring a bunch of male escorts. The word's finally getting out. Um, but in particular, there's a story circulating about a male escort who was apparently hired by Lindsey Graham. He didn't know at the time until Lindsey Graham showed up in the hotel room, and he gets out of the the escort gets out of the bathroom. Lindsey Graham is naked on all fours, and he says his his anus area is, just looks disgusting. And he asks Lindsey Graham, have you showered? He says, yes. He says, do you mind if I wipe you down? He says, yes. Go for it. He wipes him down. And this escort says, I realize he wasn't actually dirty, but that his area was just covered in moles. And Lindsey Graham, according to this guy, responded, oh, I hope you're not upset about that. Them's just my ladybugs. It's the... uh, Is the best thing ever. Uh, so read that. Find that story. Just look up Google Lindsey Graham and Ladybugs. Let that be the, the first word that pops up on Lindsey Graham's name when you Google search him from now on. That would be a, a very uh, great thing. Um, okay, two two more things very quickly. Uh, just Google suck my dick and choke on it or I yield my time, fuck you, to listen to the greatest 30-second rant um, on a police... Uh, LA outreach zoom call. This guy is brilliant. We talked about Zach De La Rocha earlier. This guy has pure rage against the machine energy. Just Google it. I yield my time. Fuck you. You will not be disappointed. Um, the last thing, going back to social media, I found this account. I was uh, so this girl. I'll uh, this this female film critic. Uh, I've been using her as a resource for the for the Neon Genesis talks we've been having. Um, she wrote a great series of essays on Mubi, M-U-B-I, about Neon, about the show. And uh, actually, she talks about the uh, end of Evangelion movie. So I ended up looking up her Twitter handle to give her a follow because I, I really appreciated her uh, her discussions. So I go on her Twitter page, and the first thing she comments is a retweet. And it says something like, oh, man, great thing to wake up to. And it's this twitter account called i'm looking up the name i'll find it and i'll make sure i add it in the description but it's it's i think it's called like best music 95 or something like that Uh, i'll get the correct twitter handle in a second Um, but basically it's this guy who's been going year by year in the 1990s and he's hosting a 128 album tournament year by year in the 90s he's already done a handful Right now, they're in the Sweet 16 of 1992, and this is basically fan-decided. Uh, um, you get you you vote in. He picks the 125 most voted on albums from a particular year. Then he has three uh, bonus selections that he gets to choose, and he ranks them based on how many votes each has received, and he starts a tournament day by day one matchup at a time 
and it whittles down from 128 to one. So right now we're in 1992. And Phil, can you guess the number one seed? An album from 1992. I will give you a clue. It is a band I have name checked tonight. Well, I I feel like I'm cheating a little bit because I literally typed in best albums of 1992, and the first one that came up was "Automatic for the People" by REM. So <laughs> that is I would, I would assume that, that is what you're talking about. This is uh, so the web, it's uh the Twitter page, um, the the tournaments are all taking place on Challenge, that website that Film Spotting uses, c h a l l o n g e dot com. I'll post the link. This guy's Twitter handle is at Best Album ninety five. So just Best Album singular ninety five, and uh, he goes year by year. We're in the middle of nineteen ninety two. It's I just found out about it today, but this you know Phil. Phil knows I love art and I love tournaments. This is my fucking jam. I'm gonna be spinning all of these albums very heavily. I think he posts one matchup a day, Monday through Friday. The very next matchup is another Sweet 16. So right now, REM's Automatic for the People has advanced to the Elite Eight, the number one seed. It will go up against the number eight seed, PJ Harvey's Dry. And now the next matchup that is being voted on tonight ends tomorrow morning. The number four seed, Sonic Youth's Dirty, is up against the number 13 seed, Tori Amos's Little Earthquake. So if you're interested... Spin some of those albums. I know the next matchup includes Angelo Badalamente's Twin Peaks album. So that's awesome. But uh, it's very cool if you like tournaments. Uh, you can also find the challenge site on his Twitter page, which connects you to all the previous tournaments. And you can look up all those albums, see who won different years. It's very fun. Cool. I'll check that out. I was gonna say, I, I know of what you listed. Little Earthquakes is my favorite. So well, I'll have to look at. How about, okay, let me give you. There, since there are only a couple other matchups still left in the tournament. Tell me if you have a pressure. Sure. The Beastie Boys Check Yourself versus Ice Cube's The Predator. Ice Cube's The Predator. Dr. Dre's The Chronic versus The Cure Wish. Chronic. The Far Side's Bizarre Ride to the Far Side, their Far Side's debut album, versus ooh, Neil Young's Harvest Moon. Harvest Moon. And lastly, the number two seed overall in the tournament. The only album above this is R.E.M.'s Automatic. Pavements, Slanted and Enchanted versus Stereolab's Pang, which I believe is their debut. Um, I don't know Stereolab well enough. I feel like that's not fair. Okay. I need So, and then what about the, the first uh, Elite Eight? R.E.M.'s Automatic versus P.J. Harvey's Dry. You have an opinion? I know Automatic for the people more. I don't know if it. Yeah, that's yeah, gonna yeah. win. If that doesn't win, I'm 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 rioting. I'm restarting the riot. Yeah. The, uh, the my most the Stereo Lab song I know is Lobu Boscalator, and there's there's very little Stereo Lab I'm familiar with. It's very German, as far as I know. Um, well, then if you're gonna be like me, this is a good excuse to start checking these albums. Yeah. Out. But I have. Uh, I've spoken a lot in the rec section. I yield my time. Fuck you. What's yours? Uh, mine is very simple. Mine is a singer-songwriter, a a man with an acoustic guitar and some soft melodies named Christian Lee Hudson. He just released an album called Beginners that was released in May of this year, and it was produced by Phoebe Bridgers, who is also going to release an album, I think, sometime in the next couple of weeks. And she has been 
she's the reason I heard about this album. She has been one of the the forces of indie rock over the last couple of years. She's we'll talk about that album when it comes out. I'm sure she's incredible. I love Phoebe Bridgers, but she's the producer of this album. She's the reason I heard it. It's called Beginners, and it's once again by Christian Lee Hudson. And it's kind of like I've, I've I feel like I've cited him a lot, but um, there it's kind of a Elliot Smith-ish man with an acoustic guitar singing slow solo acoustic songs with a little bit of backup. And they're very simple songs, but I also feel like in this crazy time when you have even something like RTJ4, which is so heavily produced and kind of crazy, it's almost been nice to have this balm of calmness, which has been this album. And this is basically a man with an acoustic guitar singing about love and life and it's not anything that's going to be revolutionary, but it's just calming and good and consistent. And it's only 10 tracks and it's 35 minutes and it's good. And that's, you know, that's worth something. So in this period of political revolution and crazy releases, this has been a calming thing for me while I've been writing and uh, working towards other projects the last couple of weeks has been this background album and very good just simple acoustic songs uh so that that's my recommendation i'll throw a track on here now um called lose this number that's been i think the biggest track off the album i'll throw that on here right now that night you shook me but i wasn't sleeping you were afraid of the thunder asked me to come in the bedroom So, yeah, otherwise, that's, I think, the show. Are we good this week, Tom? Anything else you want to bring up? I'm good. You're good? No, sir. Yes, sir. All right. Well, that's the show for this week. Please make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show. Every one of those comments helps us out incredibly. Thank you to Zach Pitts for the theme music. Leave us comments wherever, and let us just know what you think. Check us out on YouTube. Tom, tell them where to find you. Uh, big fat bond on Twitter. I guess since I mentioned Twitter, I'll say that. And uh, Bendy Tom Bendy on Instagram. Awesome. I am Phil Wiedenheft on Twitter. You can find me there. Find me on Instagram at p Wiedenheft. Uh, and from there, yeah, you'll just find some more information, see about our lives, and look in on us. Tom, I'll see you next week. We'll be talking about um Judd Apatow. I believe we've got several. Oh, no, I'm sorry, I just lied. We'll be talking about Spike Lee next week. Yeah, that seems more appropriate right Yeah, now. yeah, yeah. We'll talk about Spike Lee, and then the week after, we're going to talk about Judd Apatow and some of the movies. Yeah, back to basics, baby. Yeah, white people. <laughs> you know, I will, I will say that about Judd. I was looking through his filmography right before we started recording. It's very white. Very, very. Oh, he's the whitest He's the whitest filmmaker in the world. Almost, I, like, I'll be honest. It shocked me a little bit. Almost like. Yes. Like, I was like, yeah, there's the Mindy Kalings and Aziz's that he's cast in minor roles in the past. But other than that, like, he is been shockingly white and it was it was somewhat of a new realization for me i don't think i quite realized it until like five minutes before we started recording this episode yeah maybe uh 
Maybe this Staten Island movie will be the one he gets called out for. I don't think so. It's been, it's got the reviews. The embargo went up today, and so the reviews have come out and have been generally pretty positive. So good. I, I actually think I thought the trailer looked good. Yeah, I'm excited. I think for the it. reviews have generally been positive. I'm excited to see it. We will peek in on it in a couple weeks, but um, it comes out the same day this Friday as The Five Bloods by Mr. Spike Lee and a couple other projects. And I think next week we're going to talk about Spike Lee. I think his work along with, as we already talked about this week, do the right thing. And some of the and clockers and other projects have, it just feels more of this moment. And it's also a new release mixed with that. So we're going to talk about his career. Some of our, uh, some picks uh, that we've been revisiting and rewatching and re-exam. Folks, if you, if you can, obviously with the five bloods coming out, watch that watch, do the right thing. If you can only watch a spike, one spike, if you can only do a single spike, for and you haven't seen it, for God's sakes, watch Do the Right. Yeah, it's crazy how perfect that movie is. It's in my top ten of all time. I'll, it will never leave my top ten of all time. It's a perfect movie, and yeah, we're gonna uh, we're probably not gonna talk about that one next week because we have nothing to add to the millions no, of discussions of about that movie. But we're gonna talk about some of the smaller Spike Lee titles that have meant a lot to us over the years, and we're gonna talk about. Everything leading up to Defy Bloods, his latest movie, coming out on Netflix next week. Look forward to that. We'll see you next week. Tom. Alright, let's it's late. Let's go. Let's go lay down. Okay. Bye everybody. Love you. Love everyone. Me and Phil are gonna go lay down together. Bye. Alright, bye. <laughs>